<laughs> okay. I think I've got everything set. Okay, so brief announcements. Uh, we've got three moots coming up, each of which has uh, uh, exciting announcements to it. The first uh, is Tex Moot, of course, that is coming up quite soon now on the 8th of February. We're getting closer and closer to getting together down in Houston. Uh, looking forward to seeing several of you. I know I get to meet uh, a few of you last year, as I recall, uh, and I'm looking forward, hopefully, to being able to connect with you guys again. Uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun. And um, that's, again, February 8th. That is still uh, uh, accepting registrations, of course. We've had a number of people uh, sign up, uh, as, as is often the case for TexMoot. Uh, and uh, as I say, looking forward to connecting with a lot of folks down there in a couple weeks. Uh, a, few, a couple weeks after that, on the 22nd, I... Yeah, is that right? No, that's right. Yeah, 22nd. That's the Saturday, right? Uh, the 22nd of February is SoCal Moot out in Hollywood, and that is uh, at the Netflix headquarters out there. And uh, uh, that's uh, also going to be a lot of fun. We have a our uh, the the web the sort of event page for SoCal Moot is up on the Signum University homepage, and any like any minute now basically the registration is going to be open for that we are almost complete I did the last word that I heard is that it is almost almost done uh, so the registration will be opened and posted there very soon so you can find that but already posted and opened at last is the early bird registration for Mythmoot this year Mythmoot 7 defying and defining the darkness that is at the end of June uh, down in the Washington DC area same location we've been for the last several years for those of you who have joined us know Mythmoot is our big event of the year uh, it is a wonderful conference um and uh you know you can uh, join us and 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 become part of our family enjoy a wonderful four-day weekend of uh, uh of wonderful intellectual stimulation and fun uh we're gonna have uh, a lot of things going on this year uh at uh, uh at myth mood of course it was at myth mood uh that we did our uh, reenactment of the flight to ford last year uh so we will see i am 100 percent sure by the way um that uh uh, uh that we could do the uh, a reenactment of the uh, of the the seating arrangements. If we don't if we don't do anything else, we're certainly going to do that. Like I'm just going to call that one night at dinner. Uh, we're going to take over several tables. Uh, you know, going to go over to one of the one of the parts of the of of the dining area which is not in use by other people, and we're going to take over a bunch of tables and we're going to recreate the seating arrangements and make sure that we understand that because I'm still troubled. I'm still troubled about the seating arrangements at the Council of Elrond, or pre-Council of Elrond, of course, uh, for Frodo's banquet. And we really need to, uh, we really need to, to sort that out. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> I see. Draw down on Twitch is uh, asking me if I'm going to be doing a talk on the last 30 seconds of Eminem's Godzilla. Uh, no, I don't have plans for that, but I would be very happy to have a uh, conversation about that. Uh, I have listened to that song about 120 times in the last few days. Uh, it is absolutely fascinating. Um, but anyway, I, yeah, for those of you who went to MythMoot last year, I gave a talk on uh, rap prosody uh, uh, and Eminem. So uh, it's one of my personal interests right now. 
But anyway, so yeah, so the theme spiritual cushions for this year's Mythmoot is defying and defining the darkness. Uh, that's the uh, that's this year's theme. Anyway, so it's going to be uh, uh, it's going to be great fun. So I hope you can join us. Uh, we have early bird registration at a discounted rate uh, for the next. I'm not sure exactly. I don't remember the date when it closes, um, but that's going on for a little while now. It's open, so I hope that you'll be able to um, um, uh, to uh, uh, take advantage of that. Um, anyway, okay, so. Uh, oh, so uh, uh, where do we go to learn how to sign up to deliver a paper? I believe, Mad Violinist, that the call for papers is on the uh, the page. So if you go to signumuniversity.org and scroll down, there should be a MythMoot page, and that should have the call for papers, like the, where to send uh, a uh, thing there. Um, yes. And yeah, so the, 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 the myth moot, the myth moot dates, it's the last weekend in June. I'm forgetting the numbers off the top of my head, but it's the last uh, weekend in June. So Thursday through Sunday of the last weekend in June. Uh, and, uh, and yes, it is true. We will be doing moot cast again. So for those of you who just absolutely can't make it, uh, physically, uh, to the Washington DC area in, uh, at that time, uh, you can still join us virtually. We, we kind of premiered that, uh, sort of piloted that last year. Um, and it was, it was wonderful. I, I am so delighted, uh, that we did that. That's been a dream of mine for several years. And so I'm really, really glad that we got that together. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to our second go through with that so that people can, uh, not only, uh, so that people can, can not only participate remotely if you can't make it, uh, but also even people who attend get access to the archives. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's one of the things that's always most painful for me when I go to conferences is having to choose, right? You know, there's like three things going on at once and you, you wish you could go to all of them, but you can't. Well, with Mootcast, now you kind of can, right? You still can only sit in one room, but you can, uh, uh, you can at least go back and listen to the recordings of the things you didn't get a chance to sit in on. So uh, anyway, that's uh um that's uh that's 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 where things are going to be so i do hope that you will uh you will look into registering uh in the in the early bird window here uh for mythmoot 7 um and that is there are the numbers 25th through 28th those are the dates uh of mythmoot here in 2020 down in leesburg virginia right near uh, dulles uh airport uh is where is where that's located it's pretty convenient to the airport there all right. Um, couple other things. Um, are the summer the the registration for our spring semester courses at Signum University closes on the twenty sixth of January. It's there's still time, just time to the end of this week. Uh, if you wanted to join in, maybe audit one of our courses live. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, uh, I, I would. Uh, uh, so if, if you want a, a chance at that, I, I recommend that. But of course, also remember that almost all of our courses can be audited anytime through our anytime auditing program. Uh, so don't forget to look that up if you uh, uh, if you need to. Also, I just I know I've mentioned this before, but I wanted to mention it. Um, uh, if you're not listening to Kay Ben Avraham's Flowers of the Cedar uh, uh, podcast, uh, her serial publication of her book, you're totally missing out because the book is awesome and her performance is breathtaking. So I uh, just wanted to recommend that uh, it's out there and uh, you should totally listen to it because it's awesome. Um, 
Okay, well, the last thing I wanted to mention uh, uh, briefly is, of course, uh, we just lost Christopher Tolkien this past week. Of course, that's been news that's been, you know, out for some time here and, and uh, you know, something that everybody's been talking about. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I talked about that a little bit last Thursday, which was when, you know, when the news of that broke. Um, uh, so I don't have... I'm not going to make a whole big uh, speech about it, though. Obviously, uh, we we owe him a very great debt. I can't. I I don't really feel sad about his passing because he lived such a long and full life and accomplished so much. And uh, it just he's just one of those people. When upon his passing, I I just I you know I can't help but feel, you know, this is like a not a not a tragic but a but a triumphant moment of someone who really has has uh you know run his race and completed his quest i i was sharing at uh film film on thursday night that the 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 quote from the lord of the rings that kept running through my head when i heard about his death um was gandalf's words before the black gate you know uh the the ring bearer has achieved his quest you know and it's just that that uh, the achievement of the quest is definitely something that uh, I, I, I just this is my chief reflection looking back uh, at the life of Christopher. Um, but um, anyway, uh, yeah, exactly. O'Malley says, I feel like we should stand and applaud rather than mourn his passing. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Exactly. I mean, this is. Uh, um, uh, yeah. Yes. More of uh, uh, a moment, it seems to me. Uh, for celebration of his of his life and his amazing accomplishments, um, and so especially so so selfish, so selfless were those accomplishments. <laughs> Tragic uh, putting together of selfless and accomplishment. Uh, yes, uh, his accomplishments were so selfless. Right, this is a man who worked and worked and worked, um, and. Uh, for, for like no recognition of his own, right? Someone who, uh, who you know, dedicated his life that, you know, his father's work should be known and understood, and uh, a, a work of uh, uh, of such persistence and humility, I, I, I scarcely know any any greater example of. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Trifle says, honestly, if somebody doesn't write a biography of Christopher Tolkien and entitle it, The Last Chapters Are For You, I will be deeply disappointed. Uh, that's, that's a good title. It's a good title, Trifle. I agree. Um, um, yeah. So. Um, oh, interesting. Uh, uh, Mary uh, uh, in the Talon says, some years ago I wrote to him expressing gratitude for his dedication and diligence. Much to my surprise and delight, he graciously responded. That's, that's really wonderful, Mary. So you have a letter from Christopher Tolkien. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's fantastic. Um, I don't have that, actually, myself. Um, so that's, um, that's really good. Bruin, that's a wonderful idea. It would be really cool uh, uh, if uh, Lotro added him to the game, it would be really fun to have a, a Christopher character uh, there in the Burden Baby, maybe, you know, with uh, with the other Inklings there. Um, that would be uh, that would be really neat. Um, one last final thought about Christopher uh, is, I, um, 
sometimes I have thought that if I could go back and tell a, the young Tolkien, right? If I could go back to like, you know, the late 1920s, maybe early 1930s, right? Before the Hobbit is, the, the Hobbit is published, right? If, you know, so call it like 1934 or 1935, right? Um, he's written The Hobbit. The Hobbit's not published yet. If I could go back to 1935 or just like send, uh, you know, a message uh, to J.R.R. Tolkien, if I could tell him one thing in 1935 about the future, right? Um, I think that the thing that I would tell him is... Christopher is going to live to 95 years old and he will die mourned by millions uh, and loved and appreciated for the lifetime of work he has put in to help and support uh, the, the, the millions of people who have loved your works. Like just merely the fact, I mean, don't forget that Christopher was an invalid as a child, right? I, I do not doubt that Tolkien in the thirties wasn't even sure whether his son was going to be able to live an adult, you know, a, a full adult life, uh, you know, whether or not he was just going to die uh, young uh, and to know that not only uh, was Christopher going to survive, he was going to live to 95 years old and accomplish so much. Um, it's uh, I get I think if there were, as I say, if there were one message uh, that I could deliver to Tolkien, you know, something to, it wouldn't be about like how many copies of the Lord of the, of the Rings are going to be sold or anything like that. That I think is what I would want to tell him. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Tony says, I would tell him not to worry that people will get to read the Silmarillion. Christopher would make sure of it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Cecilia adds, and for heaven's sake, improve your handwriting. Your son will greatly appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get that. Um, yeah, mad violinist, exactly. I, I might also tell him to, yeah, like, hey, so, hey, so, uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, Ronald, don't worry about the Silmarillion, right? Christopher's got that, right? Just, just the time that you've got, spend it on the, spend it on tour and the, and, and, and the fall of Gondolin, right? Just, 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 just focus on that and everything else will take care of itself. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I mean, there are other things I might want to say, but, but those would be second. Uh, you know, my message about Christopher would be the first. Um, anyway, okay. Well, I did want to do one other thing, and I, so I am afraid that I have no mechanism by which I can transmit this to uh, the folks who are who are watching on Twitter, which means that for the folks watching on Twitter, this is gonna there's gonna be like a few minutes of silence essentially while we're listening to something else. Um, uh, I want to play Tony's song. Tony Mead um, uh, did. Um, he, he set Bilbo's last song uh, to music in honor of, uh, as a tribute to Christopher Tolkien. Um, and I wanted to play that uh, for you guys because I think it's really wonderful. Um, uh, but like, and I'm pretty sure I can pipe it through um, to, um, 
to both Discord and Twitch. But uh, so I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure I have that set up properly. Uh, but I have no mechanism for doing it to Twitter. Um, Tony can post the link directly to it uh, to Twitter. So if you look at my Twitter uh, feed, you can you can still find it. You can follow the link and get to the same place, so you can still hear it. Um, but uh, that's that's the best I'm going to be able to offer the Twitter folks. Anyway, so here is here is Tony's song.
ships beside the stony wall. Home is wide and waves are gray beyond the sunset. Leads my way. Home is Wonderful. Thank you, Tony, for sending that. That's uh, uh, that is a, a wonderful. Uh, very, very well done. I love the choice. Uh, the music, of course, is uh, from the Wexford Carol. Um, and uh, as Tony is saying, he, he chose that because, of course, you know, the text often s- says that Bilbo often set his songs to, to a melody that is as old as the hills, right? Uh, so he deliberately chose an old melody uh, to set the song to. I thought that worked really, really well, actually, with that song. Um, anyway, wonderfully done, Tony. Thank you very much for that. And I know that uh, uh, it's a, it, it is a wonderful remembrance uh, for Christopher Tolkien. By the way, on the subject of remembering Christopher Tolkien, um, uh, we're planning a Signum Symposium, uh, looking back on the life and works and discussing the importance of the works of Christopher Tolkien. So we're going to be doing a special symposium here uh, in the next... uh, Well, I'm not sure exactly when. We haven't set the date yet. Uh, We're still getting our panel together, but that's definitely in the works, and there should be some, some news about that fairly soon. All right. Very good. Uh, uh, So ends our preliminary section. Thanks again, uh, Tony, for the song there. Um, So let us get to... (laughs) Now now that we have the second preamble period, uh, which is I've been somewhat remiss lately uh, in my addressing some of the questions and and comments that you guys have been leaving on our discussion board. Um, So I wanted to start off with a couple of those. Uh, uh, First... A really good observation about Aragorn in the Hall of Fire. Uh, and can I just say before we begin, uh, I know y'all tease me all the time about how slowly we go. As uh, as uh, I forget who was it, who was it last week who characterized our pace as beyond meme worthy at this point, and I get that. But at the same time, see every like. This, this kind of thing is still constantly happening, where somebody will point something out and I'll be like, man, yeah, we just whipped right past that, didn't we? I mean, like, we didn't even talk about that. You know, so, like, you know, that's just the way it is. Anyway, so uh, this is uh, back to Aragorn's appearance at the end uh, of the Hall of Fire, not the conversation with uh, uh, Frodo and Bilbo at the beginning when the fact that he was Dunedon uh, was, uh, was first revealed, but rather his appearance standing next to Arwen at the very end. Um, So this is uh, from, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name, Parwarzra? 
Parwarzra, um, uh, says, I wonder whether the line, to his surprise, Frodo saw that Aragorn stood beside her. His dark cloak was thrown back, and he seemed to be clad in elven mail, and a star shone on his breast. Uh, the star it refers to the brooch of silver shaped like a rayed star, which is apparently the insignia of the rangers, later described in the book. That is, in the passing of the Great Company and the Return of the King. Maybe Aragorn even wears a real star-shaped brooch in the Hall of Fire, at a place and in a moment where he does not need to conceal his true identity. He could hardly wear such a precious object in Bree without raising unwanted suspicions. I, I, I agree. I suspect that that is what that is, in fact. Um, that he is wearing that insignia now openly. And that, of course, would itself be a little sort of very subtle follow-up on the fact that he's been identified as Dunedon, right, before, even though we, as we don't understand the full significance of that yet, like, we haven't, we, we, we don't know what the star in his breast means, but it is all tied to his uh, identity there, and that, uh, that makes uh, a lot of sense. Um, okay, anyway, uh, goes on to say, <clears throat> also, I would interpret his standing close to Arwen, and appearing in an undeniable splendor, which is a recurring theme in the later text, always marking decisive moments in his road to kingship without betraying his principles and ideals, as a sign of the implicit acknowledgement of their love by the persons concerned, i.e. mostly by Elrond, who, as we later read, was the only one who knew fully what this hour meant to him, as well as a manifestation of his general closeness to both of them on a personal level and of his high formal rank. The moment describes Frodo's surprise, who until then, as well as any time, as any first-time reader, does not know about Aragorn's love for Arwen. He might not even understand the full implications of what he sees, or might forget those again. Because even after overhearing Aragorn muttering Arwen's name in Karen Amroth, he never would have thought of Aragorn marrying Arwen until the very eve of their wedding. Yeah, he still can't quite guess what's coming, right, in The Return of the King. Um... Uh, it does seem that he's a little bit surprised by the wedding uh, uh, that's coming, right? Uh, as Gandalf, you know, fully sort of expects and talks about, right? About the surprise and not wanting to spoil the surprise. Um, so I, 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 so I think this is a great observation and just sort of several things that I would just kind of piggyback on and, and, and emphasize there. Um, I do agree that Arwen, that Aragorn standing there is a sign of intimacy. I mean, they're standing there. It's like a little family tableau, right? Um, and it's it's kind of fun. And we made plenty of jokes as we were going through that section about, you know, Elrond as father-in-law and, um, you know, Aragorn trying to, you know, impress uh, uh, the in-laws and, 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 and stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, it's pretty clear that it's not like they're carrying on behind Elrond's back, right? Elrond knows, and Elrond approves. There's no reason to think that he doesn't approve, right? We know that he has, you know, denied his permission until he's king, right? But that's not, um, you know, it's it's interesting. Elrond's denial, right? Elrond's, or at least to be more cautious about it, Elrond's um, condition, it has to it the shape of the kind of fairy tale uh, condition, right? I mean, it's 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 an it's a, it's a not unknown fairy tale trope uh, for the parent of the bride to be, 
to say, you can marry my daughter if you accomplish X, Y, and Z, especially if X, Y, and Z are theoretically impossible tasks, right? I'm thinking, for instance, about the story from the Mabinogian about the, uh, the, 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 the wedding of Kolhuk and Olwen, right? Um, where he's required to do all of these things, you know, Kolhuk is required to do all of these things before he can marry uh, uh, Olwen, the daughter of the giant Isbathedin. So, I mean, that's it's just one example of a, of a again, a, a not uncommon trope. And it, it kind of sounds like that, right? Um, it kind of sounds like that, but I don't think that's the spirit of the thing, right? I think that it, although it has that shape, and I think that Tolkien was deliberately appealing to that shape, and absolutely evil Dr. Cannon, this should be familiar even within a Tolkien context, um, for remembering Thingol, right? And I don't doubt that Elrond is thinking of Thingol even, because of course the parallel between Arwen and Luthien is already well established, so Elrond knows himself to be in the Thingol position, right? But instead of sending Aragorn off on a, a quest which is almost certain to be his death, right? Which is what Thingol did when he told Baron to bring him a Silmaril in his hand. Um, uh, instead of that, what Elrond does is to say to his prospective son-in-law, first you must accomplish your destiny, right? First you have to, uh, uh, like, you know, He's not denying permission. He's not even making a condition saying, I will only do this if... I mean, he does. That's the shape of it, right? But, I, but the, the, when those denials are made, they're generally made with one of two things in mind. Either A, to kill off the, persp- the, to get the guy, right? Uh, without having to do it yourself. That was Thingol's move, right? Um, so you're, you're hoping or, or planning, even indeed, that he's going to die in the attempt. Or secondly... Um, you're just making it impossible without saying no, right? So, I mean, if there's a, if there's some reason why you don't want to just say no, get out, right? Um, but you want to be a little bit more politic about it, then you, you, you make a condition, but it's a condition that's pretty much impossible to achieve. And again, it sounds like that. It has that shape. And yet I think we can see beneath the superficial similarity to that fairy tale tradition, um, which again was what was being the same tradition being appealed to in the Baron and Luthien story. Um, instead, Elrond is almost turning that tradition on its head, right? Instead of using that, you know, uh, request demand for a condition to be met, a very large and significant condition to be met. Uh, instead of using that as an excuse to say no, what he's doing is he's flipping it around and he's using their love for each other, right? He's using the, their desire to get married as a spur to accomplish the thing, right? The thing is the point, right? If if everything goes well, right? Uh, if the Dark Lord is thrown down and, and, and the ring is destroyed, which Elrond knows at the time of the condition, is basically the precondition, right? This, this is only going to happen... Aragorn is only going to be king of Arnor and Gondor reunited if we win, if the good guys win, right? And if, and moreover, if he achieves his destiny, right? Um, so, uh, anyway, so it's, it's, 
just in and I'm not saying that he suspects Aragorn of you know like not focusing on that destiny or you know needing some extra motivation for that destiny or something um but again it's um it's the way that he turns it around i think is really interesting and really important anyway so the the bottom line that i'm getting at is there is no reason to think that elrond is at all hostile to the idea um is he delighted by it no because he knows what it means Right. He knows what it means even better than Thingol knew what it meant because it had never happened before when Thingol was confronted by that. Right. Um, he knows. Right. He knows what happened with Luthien. The elves who were alive then and are still alive now have been mourning Luthien ever since because she alone of the elf kindred has died indeed and they have lost her whom they most loved. Right. That's the that's the that's the end of the Luthian story from an elvish perspective. Right. So um, anyway, so so he knows the cost of it. I'm not saying he's delighted by it, but does he disapprove of Aragorn? No, I don't see in that way. I don't see any parallel. Um, The the comparison of Elrond to Thingol is, to me, it seems entirely in Elrond's favor, right? Elrond comes out of that comparison looking really, really good. Um, and I think it's so again, we, we can kind of make jokes about it. Uh, but I think when we actually look at it, um, uh, Parwarza is absolutely right to say what we see is, is Aragorn standing with Arwen and Elrond, right, as if he's one of the family. Right. As if he is accepted. Um, And that seems to me really, really important. And Tony, you're right. It's uh, it's an entirely unselfish proposition. uh, What uh, what Elrond is proposing. Um, uh, And and fourth Dauntless. Absolutely. Uh, If Aragorn does manage to defeat Sauron and the ring is destroyed, then Elrond's realm will fail. Uh, so this encouragement is in some sense an act of self-sacrifice. Yes. Now, I mean, on the one hand, uh, and again, this is kind of, um, so remember Goadriel's words to Frodo, right? The fact that this is coming, the fact that we are now come to the point of the, you know, where, where, where things must succeed or fail, Right, where either the darkness is going to roll over Middle Earth or the Age of Elves is going to pass. One of those two things is going to happen, and in neither case is the old world going to continue. Is Elrond's realm going to continue, and Elrond's family, at least the remains of Elrond's family, remember he's already lost his wife, uh, uh, going to just continue? Like it's One way or another, it's not going to happen. Right. So to some extent... You could say it's it's not exactly self self sacrificial in the sense that like well you're going to lose things one way or another so would you rather lose them in a happy context with everybody else celebrating or would you rather just have everything like go down in flames um, you know but still it's not automatic that someone would remember that right that someone would necessarily think about it that way uh, even if that is the case. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Lilith says, so can we understand that Elrond has a kinder heart as a father to Aragorn in the books than in the films? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I kind of get... I, I can understand 
why Peter Jackson and company decided to depict, you know, to sort of cast Hugo Weaving as cranky Elrond uh, in the films. Like, I, I understand that. And I don't think that in depicting him that way, they did horrible violence to his character. But there was some violence done. Uh, Hugo Weaving's Elrond does not seem as kind as Christmas, right? That just, that just does not, <laughs> that's not how I would describe him, right? Um, or kind as summer as it is in the, in the revised edition. Uh, so, um, anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, I, yes, I do think, Lalith, that Elrond is definitely being kinder uh, to Aragorn, um, and that he and that he both of them, Elrond and Aragorn, mutually um, feel towards one another. Um, you know, as a in a sort of well, not father son relationship, but you know, sort of stepfather stepson relationship. I mean, that I think he does look at Elrond as as a father figure, uh, and. Um, I mean, that conversation, the conversation as it's recorded, which is, it's not exactly novel mode, right? It's more like Silmarillion plot summary mode. But nevertheless, the version of that conversation between Elrond and and, uh, uh, Aragorn that we get in Appendix A um, has always sounded to me very tender. I mean, remember, he begins his speech with my son, right? Um, He understands. He knows. Um, and I don't hear any, um, uh, uh, I don't hear any reproach, any shock, any, I mean, think of all of Fingal's reactions, right? Um, uh, in, you know, in the Silmarillion, and he doesn't seem to feel any of them, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um. Yeah, good. Anyway, okay. Um, oh, yeah, and then and, and just one last note about, as a, a couple of you were already saying, um, about the unexpectedness, right? About the way in which, again, we were all joking about Arwen and Aragorn's relationship and trying to impress the in-laws and stuff like that. But, of course, it's going to be opaque, to Frodo and even to a first-time reader, right? But certainly to Frodo, uh, the idea that anybody, even Aragorn—I mean, we're 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 seeing in this chapter, right? This is the moment when it's been revealed that Aragorn is one of the—I mean, okay, like the fact of it was revealed back in the previous chapter, right? With you know, um, I thought he was only a ranger conversation that Frodo has with Gandalf, right? But his identity as Dunedain and now being revealed for the first time in kind of his real, you know, his real identity, right? In, within his real scope, this is a this is a big moment, and yet even here, right? Even here, seeing him as he is uh, revealed here, and the, there's no way. Right. I mean, you know, you're the idea, uh, you know, and actually, you know, I would make a really cute couple like that is totally not going to be on anybody's radar screen at this point, um, because it is a shockingly unusual thing. This is this kind of thing didn't happen at all in the entire second age. 
right? I mean, it's been literally thousands of years since there was a joining uh, of elves and men in this way. Um, So anyway, um, yeah, exactly. It was a big shock both of the other times uh, that one of the Adain wed one of the Eldar. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So... So yes, I agree that this is something which is it's easy to feel when we get to the wedding between Aragorn and Arwen. It's easy to feel that the it's like the to feel the satisfaction of it, right? Like ah okay, this feels like an apt closure to Aragorn's story, right? Um, but, uh, but at the same time, it's really not, uh, that's, it's certainly not how it looks from here. Right. And I will say, I think, although we do get that discussion between Frodo and Gandalf about, you know, surprise and not spoil, no spoilers about what's coming and that kind of thing. Apart from that, there is not that much sort of effort put forward to, I feel like, the story at that time, that is the the account, the description um, of the wedding of Aragorn and Arwen in the Return of the King. Um, I think that that kind of undersells the significance of that moment, right? The shock of that moment. Um, I think it's very easy for a reader of the Lord of the Rings, especially a reader of the Lord of the Rings who hasn't read the Silmarillion. If you've read the Silmarillion, right, and you read Baron and Luthien's story and you know the Tuor and Idril's story, and it gives you some historical context for the fact that this is a really big deal, right? And Tolkien evokes that um, uh, in, uh, well, I should say invokes that explicitly, right, in the Lord of the Rings, uh, calling them the third uh, pairing. But um, uh, but anyway, it's... um, it's I feel like the full significance of that doesn't really hit home and in part I think that's um, it's not surprising given that the Arwen story was kind of uh, squeezed into the Lord of the Rings so late I think had it been a more organic part of the story earlier on in the process of writing the story that might have been something that he would have built up to a little bit more um a little bit more deliberately, a little bit more explicitly along the way so that the the magnitude of that moment would have hit a little bit more strongly. But anyway, all right. Um, yeah, yeah, Tarlania, you're right. There was, of course, that uh, that one time it slipped in under the radar in Dal Emroth. Um, but see, although on the one hand... Uh, Tolkien seems to have kind of developed the story of the elvish blood in the uh, uh, in the line of Dal Amroth kind of on the fly as he was going through. It's it existed prior to um, the idea that Imrahil has elvish ancestors, right? That somebody there married, took a fairy wife in the Dal Amroth line, right? Um, that pre-existed 
that came first. He thought of that before he did the wedding of Aragorn and Arwen, and yet, without altering the story of the Elvish blood and the line of Dol Amroth, uh, he still calls the wedding of Arwen and Aragorn the third such joining, right? So it's very clear that Tolkien considers this one to be on a different level. Like this, it's one thing to have elves and humans occasionally and on different circumstances making babies, right? That happens. Apparently, right? It happened. In Dol Amroth, we know for sure, right? And yet that was not one of these things, right? Um, That was not one of these moments. That was not one of these joinings. It doesn't count in this way. Why doesn't it count? That's complicated, but when he goes on to write the story in a little bit more detail, um, which you can see in Unfinished Tales, by the way, um, uh, Christopher put in Unfinished Tales some of the material that he wrote um, uh, that he wrote later on, uh, Tolkien wrote later on after The Lord of the Rings, kind of fleshing out the background. Of course, it was one of the, it was like the handmaiden of Nimrodel, right? Um, but um, uh, but in any case, yeah, he uh, uh, he doesn't um, he does not like they don't. <laughs> this is going to sound horribly technical, uh, like like it's some mere technicality. But like they don't get married. Um, she doesn't join herself. She, the elf maiden, whose name I'm totally blanking on right now, um, does not join herself to... Sorry, thank you, Trifle. Uh, Mithrellas. Mithrellas does not join herself to her to her human mate, right? She bears him a child and delivers the child to him. Um, but she does not, like, join herself to him and, they and like, they do not share the same fate and destiny moving forward. Um... It's it's not the same. Again, it's not technical, just like, well, you know, they didn't get married, and so therefore it doesn't count, you know. Uh, uh, Out-of-wedlock pairings with elves, you know, that's, that's, that's different. It is. It is different. It is exactly, Tony, much more like a medieval fairy romance. Exactly. Um, uh, but... Um, but anyway, yeah, no, I, I definitely think that there's a very significant... I mean, when Arwen and Aragorn get married there is a there is a thing right that is happening there she they are joining their fates together she knows she is making the choice of Luthien right she says that she characterizes it that way right she is join and 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 you know Mith- Mithrellis did not do that um uh with the ancestor of Imrahil um anyway so that's uh um whether or not I mean there are lots of ways I mean there, there there are things to like and not to like about this, but one thing is that is very clear is that plainly in Tolkien's mind, although it's it's not like the Imrahil thing is like an exception that came in later, or and it's not like it's uh like an accident that Tolkien forgot about knowing it, right? Adhering to it. Not removing it from the book, he still says, yeah, that one doesn't count, right? Um, 
Anyway. Let me move on, because we could talk about this kind of thing for a long time still. Um, yeah. Let's keep going, because I got one more comment I want to talk about before we even get to our text tonight. This is not a good sign. This is this might be the longest we've gone without starting the text in, well, certainly in a long time. Anyway, okay. Uh, Zalarod says, There is one thing that has been nagging me for a long time now, and that is the structure of the ages in Middle-earth. First age, second age, third age, etc. I kind of have a hard time understanding how this works and the purpose of them. For example, who and what decides when an age ends and begins? What is an age, exactly? As I understand it, the second age ended with the Great Alliance and the defeat of Sauron, and the third age ended after the War of the Ring. But how and what decides this? Is this something that is decided after the fact? And did the people of Middle-earth know that the Fourth Age was beginning after the destruction of the Ring? Uh, wasn't it someone that said that the Third Age is coming to a close in the text? If so, how do they know? Who decides this? And in the Fourth Age, does that have a timeline like the other ages? And how is it decided? When is it decided? This is, um, um, this is an excellent question. Um, and there is no hard and fast answer to this question. That is, I don't know of any... Um, there's no committee that meets to make this official um, uh, 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 declaration, right? Um, and uh, personally, I am not sure that... <laughs> it, just, it sounds a little funny to say. Um, I've always thought the end of the Second Age in particular always feels weird to me, right? In a sense. That is... Uh, well, and l l let me, well, okay, hang on. Before I, let me kind of back up a step in trying to explain that. Um, there are a couple different ways in which one can understand what it means to say, to, to, when talking about an age. Like, what is the point of defining it at all, right? Um, because this is much more than just a convenient way to depict like it's not like the way that we in the late 20th century and early 21st century have tended uh very consistently to break things down into decades right so we can talk about the 70s and the 80s and the 90s um you know that we do that right this is clearly not that kind of thing this is not just for a frame of reference there because first of all obviously it's a very very much longer period of time than that but there is a more than quantitative difference between those two things Right. Um, uh, no matter how different those periods of time may be, uh, very few people, I think, would really argue that the 1970s and the 1980s were different ages, that those were just like completely qualitatively different periods of time. Right. There were changes that happened between the 70s and the 80s. But again, there's that's not really um, it's it's nothing you know, in the way the world functions really changed, right, uh, in uh, 1980. So um, the ages are designed, are clearly designed to be a more than quantity. It's not just a quantitative unit, right? Like we're going to break time into groups of, you know, roughly 3,000 years, and we'll call that an age. When we get to that point, we'll start a new one because who needs to count up higher than that? Um, it's, uh, it's definitely bigger than that. Um, so, so what then is the point? When do you decide, right? When an age has passed and 
the idea of an age appears to be this this period of time in which certain things were true, right? In which certain things happened. And when an age changes, it's not just, it's not only a super important event has happened and we want to acknowledge that this really important landmark event has occurred by now counting years from this moment, right? To some extent, that's true, right? Um, when you look back at the, the and the three events, right, that the, the passing of the ages are roughly linked to are in each case the, the collapse of the kingdom of one of the Dark Lords, right? The fall of Morgoth at the end of the First Age and the fall of Sauron twice at the end of the Second and Third Ages, right? Um, and so it's, again, just to say, like, this was a really important moment. So from here, we're going we're gonna to start counting again just to recognize that that was really kind of a big deal. Right. So you can look at it in that sense as just kind of a historical commemorization of the events. However, uh, Zalarod, I want to focus on the point that you made about the way that the passing of the age is being anticipated. Right. Um, think about the kind the conversation that Galadriel has with Frodo. Right. Um, the third age is passing. Right. There is. An epoch is coming to an end. This is again, it's not just a quantitative, it's a qualitative shift. The fourth age is going to be different. The age the, the time of the elves is passing. The the time of the dominion of men is coming. And many people can feel that coming, know that that's coming in advance. They can tell that this age of the world. Is ending. That doesn't just mean like, I feel the incipient oncoming of a super important historical event that we're going to want to commemorate. I mean, okay, that's also going to happen, but that's, it's more than that, right? Because um, even there, even if you just think about the fall of Sauron, before and after, go 50 years before the fall of Sauron at the end of the Second Age, right? Uh, and go 50 years after it, at the beginning of the Third Age. And go somewhere like northern Rovanian or something like that, or, 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 or down in Far Harad, right? Now let's stick with northern Rovanian, right? So you're in the Iron Hills, right? You're in the Iron Hills, and it's 50 years before the fall of Sauron, and it's 50 years after the fall of Sauron. Do you know, what difference do you notice, right? Has the world changed? For you, I mean, like the geopolitical situation is different, right? Sauron has fallen, and that affects you in the Iron Hills or out you know, uh, on the, in, in the Havens or, you know, in the area that will someday be the Shire, uh, as much as it affects anybody else. But I, again, I don't think you're gonna notice that so much, right? I mean, again, it's, it's not like the whole substance of the world has changed. The end of the third age, a, a significant thing has happened. The age of elves is ending. The time of the dominion of men has come. That's not only a kind of prediction, right? That is, uh, um, that is a, um, a statement of like a, a thing that is happening, right? That, that is, that is a thing that is happening and that is due to happen. That was always due to happen. That was, had been predicted to happen for a long time. And that time is coming. And in many ways that is like, that correlates with the downfall of Sauron, but the downfall of Sauron doesn't cause it exactly. Right. It's going to happen. The question is, what are the conditions under which it's going to happen? 
right? Um, so this is this then brings me back to my quibble about the end of the second age, uh, because it rather seems to me that the fall of Numenor and the making of the world round is kind of a bigger deal than the fall of Sauron at the hands of the Battle of the Last Alliance. Um, that's why, in my mind, I always forget that it's the Battle of the Last Alliance that uh, where the years change. That's the... Here's my explanation. My explanation for that is that the... Um, uh, the numbering, like the actual numbering of years, which signals the change in the ages, that's a convention, and ultimately it's a Gondorian convention, right? It is not at all surprising to me that in Gondor, they would date the beginning of the Third Age from the death of Elendil and Isildur and the, the, you know, the winning of the War of the Last Alliance, right? The overthrow of Sauron and the beginning of the real Gondorian Age, even though Gondor is established a little bit before that. Um, but still... That makes all kinds of sense. And in the same kind of way, Aragorn, at the beginning of the Fourth Age, right after the downfall, the second downfall of Sauron, the second and real, this time they mean it, downfall of Sauron, um, basically decrees. The Fourth Age is going to, we're going to start counting again, you know, from one here now, because this is going to be the Fourth Age. Um so I think that there is a distinction. I think there's meant to be a distinction between when a particular calendar starts over, right? Um, and when the age passes, right? Uh, because I think that the passing of the ages are a far different thing. Um, and uh, I mean, again, we, we, and we have a ready example of this, right? In the Shire calendar. Right, the Shire Reckoning does not start over when the Fourth Age begins. Right, the Shire Reckoning just carries on. Why? Because the majority of people in the Shire didn't even notice when Sauron fell. Right, that was not for them in their immediate surroundings a enormously important historical event that's going to lead them to start counting their years over again. Right, the Shire Reckoning just carries on. Right, and I'm sure that that's true in many other places that also had calendars. Right, but not so. In Gondor. So again, when you're looking at the question even to say when does the first age and the second age officially begin or not, well, you've got to choose some standard. And since it's the Gondorians who keep the scrupulous calendars, their calendars are the ones that make it into the tale of years, right? But I am not convinced that that's the real truth of the matter, um, in as much as there is a real truth of it, right? Um, it seems to me that this significance that's given to the ages of the world, because it, it is really important, and there is not only a, a quantitative but a qualitative difference between the first age and the second age and the third age and the fourth age, right? Um, but those qualitative differences um, have to do with far more than just particular events in history. The breaking of Thangarodrim, uh, and the the breaking of of uh, Beleriand, right? Uh, the intervention of the you know the champions of the West, uh, the taking down of Morgoth and the and his banishment, uh, that was a big deal, like ontologically a big deal in the history of the world. It makes all kinds of sense um, uh, that 
uh, the first age of the sun is basically done at that point, right? And what comes different, the world is different after that, right? The world that the Numenorians live in, it's not exactly that this equality of the world has changed since the Elder Days, right? Um, similarly, downfall of Numenor, the making of the world round, it's a big deal, right? The world is definitely not the same uh, uh, after that, right? Um, and then in the Third Age, after the downfall of Sauron, uh, the last downfall of Sauron, the world is different, not because Sauron has been defeated so much, as because the time of elves is gone and the dominion of men is beginning, right? That call that, that you know, that call that the elves have been kind of feeling to sail into the West, right, is now picking up. Like, it's, it's, it's time, right? The times of the elves is past. The fading time uh, has now really begun in earnest. Now, there are correlations, clear correlations between these eras and the, the you know, when the qualitative state of the world changes and the fall of Dark Lords, right? I don't think that in most cases, in Morgoth's case, arguably, but not in Sauron's case, I think in neither one of the cases with Sauron did, was that correlation 100% linked to causality, right? I don't think it's a coincidence either, but I don't think it's the cause. Sauron's defeat is not what causes that change in the, uh, in the quality of the world either time, I don't think. Um, also, there's a correlation between those changing of the ages and the beginning of numbering again uh, in the Gondorian calendar. Um, but again, that correlation is not perfect because their calendar is based on their point of view and from their political perspective, so they date it uh, from the... Uh, 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 they they date it from the uh, the the time when the significant local event occurred, right? And the fall of Sauron was a very significant local event both times that it occurred. Um, so that's not really very surprising. Um, anyway, so that's um, my not very brief response to this. Um, I. So I said before that I had a quibble. I think I've talked myself out of my quibble if we can just kind of be open-minded about it and not be too pedantic in our insistence upon the dating, in that is, upon the adherence to the Gondorian, as if the Gondorian calendar is the one that absolutely lays down the law about when the Third Age officially begins. No, that's when the Third Age begins in Gondor, right? Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Third Age has begun everywhere, right? Um, anyway, so there's, uh, um, it's, uh, the ages are themselves big deal, but there's no committee and there's no uniformity. And again, everywhere, in lots of places around Middle-earth, you're going to have cultures that carry on not even really fully understanding that there's any significant, you know, do they perceive it on some level? Are they aware of the fact that the world is now going on a little bit differently than it did before? Possibly. Possibly. Um, but, uh, uh, anyway, it's, uh, uh, I don't, there's, there's a little, again, the Shire is our clear example of this, right? You go back to the Shire and uh, they're not 
they're not changing their dating system. Um, yeah, exactly, Trifold. I see that the, the Shire calendar is a really good illustration of this. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Bree would not change its dating either. Exactly, exactly. Um, okay. So thank you, Zalard, for bringing that up. That's uh, a really interesting and important point. And hey, it's like 11 o'clock. Let's talk about, let's go back to our text. He, having just done his recolle- his personal recollection of the Battle of Dagorlad and, and uh, Frodo having just reminded us as readers uh, that it's a really big deal that Elrond was there personally. And by the way, I really like the uh, discussion that several of you uh, were having on the discussion board about, you know, several of you are kind of trying to wrap your minds around how old Elrond is and what it would mean uh, in the terms of... Uh, in terms of our world. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we were talking about, you know, remembering ancient Egypt and stuff like that. But it is true. If you map it back, it's really much fairer to say that, uh, you know, if Elrond were alive, to, you know, if, 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 if today were the time of the Council of Elrond, uh, Elrond's memory stretches back to before any recorded civilization on planet Earth. Um, absolutely. Um but anyway, okay. Uh, so, so, so we got that, um, and he has just recalled about how Isildur took the ring from Sauron. At this, the stranger Boromir broke in. So that is what became of the ring. He cried, "If ever such a tale was told in the south, it has long been forgotten." I have heard of the great ring of him that we do not name, but we believe that it perished from the world in the ruin of his first realm. Isildur took it. That is tidings indeed. Alas, yes, said Elrond. Isildur took it as should not have been. It should have been cast then into Oradruin's fire, nigh at hand where it was made. But few marked what Isildur did. He alone stood by his father in that last mortal contest, and by Gilgalad only Círdan stood and I. But Isildur would not listen to our counsel. This I will have as guild for my father and my brother, he said, and therefore, whether we would or no, he took it to treasure it. But soon he was betrayed by it to his death, and so it is named in the north Isildur's Bane. Yet death maybe was better than what else might have befallen him. Okay. Um, Yes, Lilith, it is really easy to forget that the story of Isildur bearing the ring is not told in Gondor, and that very few people know these stories. Notice, I would I would add to that, Lilith, notice that G- G- Boromir is, like, kind of bragging about the fact that he has heard of the great ring of him that we do not name. I suspect, hearing Boromir say that and in that way... I have heard of the great ring of him that we do not name. Suggests to me that not everybody has. Right? I bet you if you just like go to a, you know, somebody on the street uh, in Minas Tirith, they would not know that there was a great ring. Right? That Sauron had a great ring. I doubt that that is very general knowledge. Boromir points out that he has heard of this. Right? Ah, yes, it is known that Sauron had a great ring, but he doesn't know what came of it. Right? 
Um, we believe that it perished from the world in the ruin of his first realm. Isildur took it. Um, and by the way, so this is one of those sentences in the audiobook, Rob Inguis says, Isildur took it. Uh, as if the stress is on the first word, and I think that's wrong. I think the stress is on the second word. Isildur took it, I think, is what he's saying, right? Because it's not who did something to the ring that is shocking to Boromir. It's what that person did with the ring, right? Isildur took it. We thought it, he destroyed it. He took it. That is tidings indeed. That's what the tidings is, I think. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, spiritual cushions, again, I'm here speculating now based on a speculation, um, but he's asking, would it be obscure lore or was the knowledge kept secret? Um, I suspect, again, if I'm reading that sentence correctly, uh, I don't think, um, I don't think that... I think they would keep it secret. I don't think it would be generally known. Um, uh, yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't think it would be generally known. Um, yeah, Trifle says it's been three and a half thousand years, and if people thought it was destroyed, there's little call to remember it. Yeah, I mean, it also... It's certainly... At this point, the fact that Sauron the enemy once had a really powerful ring is kind of a, well, a point of trivia, right? Again, if you think it's if you think it was destroyed, as they do, right? Apparently, that's what Boromir was taught in Gondor was that the ring was destroyed. The fact that the enemy in ages past once had a ring, like who cares? He doesn't have it now, right? It was destroyed, so you know whatever. Um, uh, so, um, so yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, and, and, you know, there were, there were no news of what happened with his Ildor and stuff that came to the South. Um, yeah. Um, I'm. Here's the thing that interests me about that paragraph, though. What is Boromir thinking? Isildur took it. Isildur took it. That is tidings indeed. What's he thinking about? What, what does this, what do these tidings mean to Boromir? Um, is his mind immediately... Leaping to, well, hey, it might still be in play then, right? Possibly, possibly. I mean, is it just a, you know, good on him, right? Excellent. Right? He's got more sense than I thought. Um, uh, Kurtzimus, I don't think a question of rights, that is that, you know, the men of Minas Tirith have a right to possess it. I doubt that that's the first thing in his mind here. And, and I say that, uh, well, let me come back around and say, I'm going to come at this from, from, from another direction. 
his verb choice doesn't suggest that to me. Took. Right? Um, Isildur took it. That doesn't sound like somebody who is trying to establish a legal right to something, right? Um, the emphasis there seems to be not Isildur owns it, right? Or Isildur, um, uh, you know, uh, has legal possession of it, but rather he didn't destroy it. He kept it. Isildur kept it, really, right? Um, so he is, he is responding to the, I think it's, I think it seems to me much more about the fate of the ring than the legal ownership of the ring. Exactly, Valori. If he had said Isildur claimed it or something like that, it would seem to be pointing to right of ownership, right? But but I th- it seems to be just, again, he took it instead of destroying it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, we also don't know anything that we don't know what Boromir knows about the ring, right? Um, he calls it the Great Ring, capital G, capital R, right? So what does that tell us? It tells us that he knows that the ring is powerful, right? Um, the idea that it is called the Great Ring does imply, to me, at least the very great possibility that the lore of the rings in general, like that Sauron had a great ring which gave him power over uh, the other great rings. Perhaps that knowledge has been kept in Gondor. Um, It seems possible. Not, I don't think that his phrasing there proves that that's true, but it would be consistent with it, right? Um, Yeah. Um... Yeah, Tony says, I think Boromir studied more than he gets credit for. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely not ignorant. He's definitely not not ignorant. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, And exactly, Matt goes back to the sentence, so that is what became of the ring. Um, uh, Saying it would indicate that it is known of, at least by the stewards, um... And it sounds like it is a mystery that line has been trying to solve for some time. Yes, exactly. Matt, I agree with that. So that is what became of the ring. As if there were doubt. As maybe there are different schools of thought. Maybe there have been over the over the millennia in Gondorian history. Different, you know, maybe, uh, you know, the general accepted explanation is that the ring was likely destroyed at the time of the downfall of Sauron. Right, but there probably have been schools of thought among Gondorian scholars which have argued that perhaps the ring was not destroyed, uh, and there's probably been some wacky theory or other that Isildur kept it for himself, and probably others that you know. I, I'm sure there have been all kinds of theories, right, uh, over the course of uh, Gondorian scholarly history, right? Maybe the elves took it exactly. Um, so, Matt, I agree. I think that that's a really important... That that sentence does seem to me fairly revealing. So that is what became of the ring. Oh, man! Right? Here's thousands of years of scholarly debate in Gondor settled. Right? Um, now we know what really happened. Um, yeah. 
Uh, Arden Cran asks, is it correct to assume that a Wendell would have destroyed the ring had he survived? Well, who's to say, right? I mean, who's to say uh, what decision Elendo would have made, right? Um, because here's, well, we'll get to that in a minute. I was going to say what we know about or what we can gather from the quotation we get from uh, El- from Elrond, from Isildur, through Elrond. Um, but anyway, yes, Isildur took it. That is tidings indeed. I do suspect, of course, that Boromir's interest in this question is not purely scholarly, right? Um, I do not doubt that he sees a potential practical application of this and that it is, it seems very possible that his own interest in the scholarly question, if indeed we're reading that correctly, and there has been a scholarly a scholarly debate in Gondorian circles, Boromir's interest in that scholarly debate uh, probably is more than theoretical, right? Um, but uh, if ever such a tale was told in the South, it has long been forgotten. Um, so yes, I think that Boromir's, I, we I think that we can speculate that Boromir's interest in the ring um, is of long standing in his life, right? Because um, again, notice he doesn't say like Isildur, Isildur took it. That is tidings indeed, right? He doesn't. He's not interested only in the ring. Like he doesn't just say the ring is still around, right? It can be found. I don't think that, like, you know, like the ring is to Boromir as like the Ark of the Covenant is to the Nazis in in you know the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? I'm not, I don't think that he, you know, has long been, uh, you know, hoping to find it in order to further the war effort. Again, I I, I don't. I, I that doesn't feel to me correct here. But I do think that it's, he does sound like this was something that always interested him and that he always kind of wondered about. Um, but um, anyway, Elrond, notice how Elrond immediately turns the conversation, right? Um, that is tidings indeed. You get the impression from Elrond's response um, <laughs> yeah, Luke says it sounds like Boromir just won a bet. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. Um But um uh anyway. Yes, and Tony, you're right. At this point, none of them know that the ring is actually in the room. Yes, exactly. Boromir uh still has some surprises coming to him before too long, right? Um uh yeah, Simon says, I'm curious why Boromir broke in here in the first place. Why was he so excited that he interrupted Elrond? And again, I, I get, that seems to me significant here. We're going to see him uh, not interrupt, put himself forward with more than a tiny bit of pomposity, right, fairly soon. But that's not what happens here. You're right, Simon. He interrupts. He breaks in on, uh, on, on, on Elrond. Frodo did that, too, in his surprise as he was, like, suddenly confronted with the reality of uh, Elrond's personal antiquity, right? Um, but, yeah, uh, <clears throat> Boromir makes a similar, uh, a similar 
interruption, right? He puts his foot in his mouth in a similar kind of way. Um, so it does sound like he is really invested in this. Not not just that he is taking an interest now, um, but yeah, in more, you know, Luke, in more of that kind of uh, I just want to bet spirit, like, holy cow, this is something, you know, I mean, again, like, I, 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 you know, I'm a scholar. I remember in graduate school, right, there are any number of things that uh, if... Uh, you know, somebody just, uh, you know, kind of uh, someone who is there just like dropped an answer to like one of the questions I have about the Canterbury Tales. Right. I would be like, I would probably interrupt at that point and be like, what, really? Uh, anyway, yeah, that's that um, that is exactly how that sounds. Um, but again, I don't think it's just a scholar, merely a scholarly interest. I don't doubt that his interest is also, in a sense, practical. Um, but I don't think that we would be safe in taking from this that he is, like, brewing with a lifelong obsession about the ring already. But it is clear that this is a question that really, really interests him. And it's conspicuous that he has come up We're going to learn very soon that he has come to Rivendell in order to have uh, uh, hard words explained to him, right? There's a poem that he needs to have explained to him, so obviously he's come to the right place. Um, He doesn't even realize. When he's saying this, he's not, oh, Isildur's pain! Oh, yeah, no, this is totally why I'm here! He's not, not even apparently making that connection yet, Right? As we were saying, he still has more surprises yet to come. Merely the fact that the ring wasn't destroyed itself is uh, a big deal, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Good, Tony, you're right that we do know that he was primarily interested in histories of old battles. Faramir is going to say as much, right? Yeah. Notice how Elrond immediately turns this, turns Boromir's um, excited exclamation. Isildur took it! That is tidings indeed. Alas, yes. The interjection of the alas, right, uh, is Elrond's first move here. I'm confirming that, and I want to make sure to direct you to the fact that this is a this is bad news. Right. This is bad news. Lest you be tempted to view this as good news, because it seems that Boromir is viewing this as good news. Right. Um, Yet, I think that uh, Elrond is clearly trying to push him in the opposite direction. Isildur took it as should not have been. Yes, he took it, but that was bad. It should have been cast then into Orodruin's fire nigh at hand where it was made. I mean, opportunity was right there. This could all have been over. But few marked what Isildur did. He alone stood by his father in that last mortal contest, and by Gilgalad only Círdan stood in eye. But Isildur would not listen to our counsel. They counseled him. They counseled him, right? They advised him. Destroy it. Right, but few marked what Isildur did. Here again, I find the verb really interesting. Right, um, 
Yeah, oh good. Sorry, Simon, I want to come back to your comment here. Simon says, looking at the full page this is from, the use of the word took seems significant. Elrond says, Isildur cut the ring from his hand and took it for his own. Then Boromir interrupts and finishes with, Isildur took it, that is tidings indeed. And Elrond says, alas, yes, Isildur took it, as should not have been. Yes, that repetition of the word took is really important, right? Um, Isildur took it. And uh, and Boromir repeats it. Isildur took it! And Elrond comes in as, yes, Isildur took it, as should not have been. The taking of the ring. So, like, the message is taking the ring is bad. <laughs> taking the ring is bad. Um, yes, yes. Um, exactly, <laughs> music gal. And he deserved a kicking in the tuchus, uh after that. Yep, absolutely. Um, uh, music gal, did, did were you in the War of the Ring course where, like, Tolkien makes that joke in the... Uh, first draft of the Scouring of the Shire, like he actually, yeah, th- thrashed him in the tuchus. Yeah, exactly. It's it's like it t- that's a Tolkien joke. That is a legitimate Tolkien pun. He cut it out of the final edition, but yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Because um, trifle absolutely took does have an element of by force, and taking it by force from Sauron. There's nothing that's not good about that. Right? That is excellent. If Sauron has it and you can take it by force, you do it. Right? But when Elrond comes back the second time, right? Here, you know, so Simon, I'd come back to that repetition. It's not a simple repetition. Right? He takes it from Sauron. But there's a difference between taking it off the body and taking it to keep for oneself. Right to take it unto oneself, right, and that is the thing which should not have been. He's not saying he should never have touched it. He's not saying that he should have left Sauron with it. What he's saying is, there's a difference between the genuinely heroical act of taking it off of Sauron's body. I still give Isildur plen- plenty of props. Were I depicting it, I would not have Isildur cowering in the bushes and only coming out to loot the corpse after he after Sauron was safely dead. I would give Isildur a pretty good role in... Uh, the, I'm not... I, I, if I'm depicting this scene, like, who gets the kill shot? I, I mean, personally, I'd kind of have to go with Gilgalad there, you know, in his dying breath, but, you know, whatever. The point is, Isildur was involved. I think Isildur was involved. The taking it off the body is a good thing. When Elrond comes back and repeats it the second time, that verb took, he clearly means the other meaning of that, or the further meaning of that. Isildur took it as should not have been. He shouldn't have taken it unto himself. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, to take it for his own is definitely, definitely a problem. Um, yeah and Tony I would not oppose the idea of its being a Sildor I could absolutely see that Um, and yes Tony is also right that Gandalf makes the point that to Frodo that the way one acquires the ring has significance right Um, and by the way I don't think the way that he acquires the ring is necessarily bad again 
looting the corpse. You, you do that, right? You have to take the ring away from Sauron. Somebody's got to take it, right? It needs to be taken away. Um, you know, his, uh, his acquiring of the ring is like the most legit ever. I mean, you could say Bilbo's, but okay, no, Frodo's inheriting it was even more legit. But, um, but anyway, uh, yeah, he's disarming Sauron. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but here's the other verb that really interested me in that paragraph, which I was just getting around to. Um, marked. But few marked what Isildur did. Few marked it. That means, literally, that sentence means, but very few people noticed what Isildur was up to. Right? Few marked what Isildur did. Um, he doesn't just say, nobody could tell Isildur what to do. Right? That man was stubborn, right? Now, does he imply that? Yes, but he doesn't... That's not what he says. What he says is, few marked what Isildur did. Um, so I think when he says, when Elrond says that, but few marked what Isildur did, he is responding to Boromir. When Boromir said, if ever such a tale was told in the South, it has long been forgotten. And Elrond is saying, oh, there's a good reason for that. There's a good reason why that tale has not been told in the South, and that's because few marked what Isildur did. Um, there's, um... Because, uh, yeah, there were, in fact, only two witnesses. Círdan and I. Because that's what he immediately goes on to emphasize. He alone stood by his father in that last mortal contest, and by Gilgalad, only Círdan stood and I. Right? This was a five-on-one combat. This was a, there was, this was a, well, they were a little shy of a six-man fellowship, right, when they were fighting the big boss fight at the end of the, of the War of the Last Alliance, right? It was just the five of them and Sauron. Two of them, well, counting Sauron, three of them were out of commission, only three of them were left, right? Um... So, uh, yeah, exactly. Simon says, honestly, I'm impressed three of the five good guys survived. Me too. Me too. Uh, Kierden, uh, especially should really count himself lucky. I mean, he kind of, I mean, honestly, seriously, we going into that fight with those five against Sauron. If there's one of them that looks like a red shirt, it's Kierden, clearly. Right. Anyway, so few marked what Isildur did. No, nobody knows this. Nobody saw this. Only Kierden and I saw it. So I can tell you, Boromir, what really happened that day, but it's no shock that you haven't heard it before. Um, but Isildur, because Isildur would not listen to our counsel. So, uh, notice a couple things here. There's a... Yeah, no, Anarian's uh, already dead. Um, yeah, exactly. Oh, I see. Uh, Zephan is pointing out that Anarian was the sixth in the sixth man, but in the sixth man fellowship. Uh, but he, he's already dead, so that's where they were five at that point. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, in Brick Tales, I agree. It is kind of strange to think of Kyrdan doing something active. Like that's like, yes, I agree. Kyrdan leaving the Havens and coming into battle does seem like a bit of a departure uh, from his uh, standard mo. Um, anyway, Elrond 
immediately goes on to quote Isildur. And knowing what we know, right, seeing what we have already seen just during book one uh, of the Fellowship of the Ring, we should be able to hear the warning bells, right? What do you hear in that quotation? This I will have as wear guild for my father and my brother. What do we what do we hear there? He's claiming it. Yes. He has a right to it. Absolutely. Yeah, Simon points out, this I will have, right? His claiming uh, it for himself, right? We see the I there. This is not, he's not, this is not for the greater good. This is, he, he wants it. He wants it. Exactly. It's not a birthday present, but it's uncomfortably close. Where guild is totally a thing. Right. I mean, that's that's a legitimate concept that if your kin have been slain by someone, there is a wear guild that is laid upon. So wear guild means means, you know, uh, like, you know, the uh, man gold, basically. Uh, it's the 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 price that is paid that is laid upon the blood of a uh, of a slain kinsman. So if somebody kills your kinsman, they pay a wear guild, then like legally they like you don't have to kill them anymore like they've 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 like it's not atoned but um uh but anyway exactly uh uh morning when the point of it is to avoid blood feud right um where guild is legitimate is this a where guild no here's the thing there are two things um that this has in common with Gollum's birthday present right one uh, Gollum's the ring was not actually a birthday present for Gollum, right? It did come on his birthday, he says, right? And maybe he did, right? But, uh, but it was not, in fact, a present given to him. That was a lie, a twisting of the, of the truth of things that Gollum said in order to justify his taking the ring, right? Isildur, is this Weregild? No. This is no more Weregild than it was birthday present to Smeagol. Weregild is offered by living people. If you loot your enemies, like if you slay your enemies and take their stuff, it doesn't count as Weregild. That's like almost the opposite of Weregild, in fact, right? Um... Like, that which you have pried out of the cold, dead hands of your foes is not where killed. Like, it, that's the point. Exactly. That spoils. That's exactly what that is. So, um... Exactly. Yeah. Where guild does not apply if the person you're claiming it from is actually dead. Uh, no. In fact, if anything, uh... If, if, if there were to be where guild applied, it would be it would be Isildur that would owe where guild like to Sauron's family for killing him. Right. Uh, so um, uh, anyway, so it's not legally speaking. It's a fiction, just as Gollum's birthday present is a fiction. But both of them are plausible. It is totally plausible, uh, sort of psychologically plausible. Right. For Boromir to say. I have lost my brother. I have lost my father. 
it is right that I should keep this ring as wear guild, right? It's I'm owed this by Sauron for the for the the blood that he has slain, he has he has shed in my family. Makes sense, right? Sounds good. That totally works. Just as I mean, it was his birthday, right? So you know, it is kind of a birthday present in the sense that it came. On his, you know, it, it, it obviously had turned up just so as to be a present. It was his birthday present, right? Uh, quoting Gandalf's quoting of uh, uh, Gollum's rationalizations. Um, anyway, oh, did I just say Boromir? Sorry, I think I, I might have slipped there uh, when I meant to say Isildur. Uh, an easy slip to make, uh, as I have always been struck by the parallel between the two of them. Um, but... Um, Anyway, and yes, Fourth Thoughtless points out that let's not forget that Bilbo basically does the same thing, right? The ring belongs to me because Gollum should have given it to me, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, at least in the first edition, that's kind of how it works, right? Um, Gollum says he would give him a present if he wins the the riddle game, and he does win the riddle game. So he totally has a right to the ring, right? The first edition version of the story works perfectly, is a perfect parallel to these in that we see the same pattern in play. Namely, that the person who claims the ring for themselves feels the need to justify it and has a kind of uh, shaky legal ground to justify it. So, we have all kinds of reasons to be skeptical of that quote that is of what lay behind that of what Isildur was thinking when he says that right we as readers will understand that pattern way better than almost anybody in the room Elrond will get it now certainly even if he didn't fully get it at first Gandalf certainly gets it I think Frodo is probably like feeling a little bit uncomfortable when he hears that quotation right I bet I bet you that Frodo and Gandalf exchanged a significant glance at that point. Um, and I bet you that Bilbo was very carefully looking down at, at something else. Right? I'm, I'm imagining lots of like uncomfort uh, <laughs> in the room, right? As that is being said, not from everybody, but from Bilbo, Frodo and Gandalf. Exactly. Simon Bilbo is looking anywhere, but at Glowen. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, Simon, I wonder if that's what Bilbo is thinking when he is later going to say, not too long from now, going to say, and if anyone else has heard me tell it otherwise, I ask them to forget it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's in this moment that Bilbo is beginning to feel awkward, right? <laughs> yeah, Tony says Bilbo is wondering if he should maybe bring up lunch now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um Anyway, so, so yes, there are some in the room who understand the significance of this, and certainly we understand the significance. But back up another step. Few marked what Isildur did. Isn't that odd now? You're Isildur. Your father's dead, your brother's dead. You're the king of Gondor and Arnor now. You have thrown down the Dark Lord, and you have spoiled him of his greatest weapon. You have in your possession the mighty ring of Sauron himself. What do you do? When, you know, they have your parade through the streets of Minas Anor and Osgiliath and Minas Ithil, what do you do? You, 
you you brag about that, don't you? I mean, normally, that's what you would do, right? You would you like I mean, it, when you take trophies from I mean, this is what the Romans did, right? What do you when you, when you had your triumph when you have your triumphal parade? What do you do? You have like. You ideally you drag in chains like the foreign rulers that you overthrew. You are you, you have whole like floats in the parade, right? Designed to display the spoils of war that you took from the enemy, right? So that would seem to be the move. I mean, it's like gotta be a, a, a like a, a morale boost, right? Right? What what is this? Yeah, check this out. I have the enemy's ring. Because, I mean, there's got to be some people who've, who have to wonder, right? Like, seriously, the Dark Lord was thrown down? There's no precedent for that. I mean, there is at the end of the First Age with, like, Morgoth and stuff. But even that was different, right? And the gods themselves came over and took a hand, right? Uh, and the elves, right? I mean, it's it's a big deal. It was it was this, this was nothing like that. Yeah, Last Alliance of Elves and Men, that was cool. But still, like, so, so you're telling me, I mean, it's still not to doubt you or anything. But, like, how can we know? that Sauron is really gone. And Isildur would be like, cause of this baby, right? Check this out, right? Totally looted this off the cold moldering corpse of Sauron himself, right? Absolutely. And Tony, I agree. Him wearing it on a chain on his neck in the movie is pretty plausible. Like the way he's just kind of wearing it openly, right? That's just what you would do, right? And be like, yo, yo, hey. Check it out, right? Sauron's totally gone. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He keeps it secret. He doesn't tell anybody about it. He has the great ring of the enemy, right? And not only does he not brag about it, he doesn't tell anybody. Few marked what Isildur did. That doesn't explicitly suggest that Isildur is being furtive about it, right? Elrond clearly marked what he did, right? But again, this comes back to uh, one way, I think, to understand what Elrond is suggesting here. When Boromir says, if ever such a tale was told in the South, it has been long forgotten, Elrond is kind of saying, yeah, you know, funny thing about that, actually, right? Isn't it strange? Don't you find that a little weird, Boromir? Isn't it weird that nobody in the South remembers this? Don't you think that would be something that would be, you know, a pretty big headline at the beginning of the Southern histories? Maybe? Yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> right? Fort Thoughtless says, and now Bilbo's feeling very uncomfortable. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so, exactly. I do think that this is yet another red flag, right? Isildur's keeping the ring to himself, not just holding on to it himself, but not telling anybody about it. The fact that nobody in the South Kingdom is even aware of the fact that the ring was not destroyed. This does not seem to be lore that was merely lost over time. Like, back in the first generation, it was publicly known. And he was going around and bragging about it, but everybody forgot about that over time. That does not seem to be the situation. Even the contemporary document which survives in Bor in Boromir, I will say it again, in Isildur's own hand that Gandalf is going to quote from later on, uh, that is still a private document, it seems. 
it's not a public declaration. It's not evidence that it was once widely known. In fact, if anything, that document suggests that it definitely was secret. Um, and that's why it was so hard to find, and that's why nobody knows about it. Anyway, okay. So we have lots of reasons to think that um, there are some serious red flags here. So now I'm coming back to, and I forget who it was, sorry, who was asking about Alendo and what would Alendo have done with the ring. I don't see any positive reason. Um, I don't see any positive reason to think that... Um, to think that Elendo would have done any different. I mean, was Elendo greater than his son? Probably, but I, I don't I don't really I don't really know. Um, I don't really know, but again, I see no absolute reason to believe that he would have done differently. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe he would have done but again, what evidence is there that he would have done? Um, exactly, Fort Thauntless. Greatness is not protection from the ring. And if we've seen anything in Middle-earth history, one of the clearest trends that we see is that being great certainly does not make you immune to the temptation to fall. Right? Uh, in fact, there's a pretty high correlation between those who are greatest uh, being the ones, in fact, who do fall. Um, yeah. Anyway, exactly. Only humility is a protection. And although we know many wonderful things about Elendil, I can't remember any time when any legend or document bragged about Elendil's humility. Maybe he was a really humble guy. Don't know. But, you know, again, um, you know, I'm not sure Elendil the Tall was any Sam Gamgee, is what I'm saying. Um, Okay. But soon he was betrayed by it to his death, and so it is named in the north Isildur's Bane. Someone was just asking, um, uh, someone was just asking, so it's not known in Gondor that it's called Isildur's Bane? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, they know about Isildur's death, like, they know that he died. And it sounds like they have some general... I mean, they know that he set off for the north, and they know that he never got there, right? Um, but it is not known that the ring had anything to do with that. They believe the ring was destroyed. So no, in the south they do not call it Isildur's Bane. When Isildur's Bane is referred to in the poem, in the dream... They have no idea what that means. That's one of the things that he's coming to Elrond to have explained to him. Exactly, Trifle. Faramir does know that he was slain by the arrows of orcs. Yes, exactly. Yeah, good. That's right. That's right. Um, so, this leaves, of course, one last question, and then we'll have to end our discussion for today after only one slide. Um, Elrond knows it. Why does Elrond keep this to himself? Elrond and Círdan. Few marked what Isildur did, but not no one. Elrond marked it, and Círdan marked it, right? Why do they... Why do they... Why do they not share that? 
Why don't they broadcast that? They could, right? It's 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 known. Um, Yeah, yeah. Karina uh, uh, says, smart enough to notice, smart enough to stay silent. Yeah, I don't see any good reason for them to bring that up. Why would he? Why would he talk about it? I mean, yeah, he could publish this, right? I mean, he could, he could send somebody down to Gondor to post pamphlets, right? He could post broadsides all around Minas Anoras Gilead and Minas Ithil saying... Uh, be ye notified. Uh, eyewitness testimony says Isildur took the ring from the hand of Sauron as should not have been. And it led to his death. He could have said all these things. Therefore, we've renamed that ring Isildur's Bane. FYI. Right? This, that, that could totally have happened. Right? But why? Why would he have done that? Why on what what possible good can come? And it's fairly easy to see some bad things that could have come from it, right? Um, first of all, as good as several of you are pointing out, nobody wants to, nobody, least of all the elf lords, want to talk about the rings of power, <laughs> right? Because they do still have theirs, which they're quite keen on keeping secret. So, um, uh, you know, it's um, yeah. So let's let's not talk about this very much. Um, Elrond is one of those who is most motivated to let that subject just kind of pass into ancient lore and eventually be forgotten about. And Angrist, that's an excellent point. Um, why are the el- why are the elves bad-mouthing our hero? Yeah, exactly. It would sound like some kind of, like, bizarre smear campaign, right? I mean, that's, that's like, seriously, what is the positive angle? There, what good could possibly come of that? They believe that Isildur was a great hero who destroyed the ring. Okay, you know, mostly right. Uh, is there will any good be done by disabusing them of that of that idea? Um, and if so, what possibly uh, could it be? Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, but of course, there's another angle as well, right? And that is, if they spread the news about that, doesn't it seem then likely that there, it's almost an invitation for people to seek it? So yeah, uh, so the Ring of Power, Sauron's great ring, was claimed by Isildur, and he had it on him when he died. Just saying. <laughs> so it's still out there somewhere, right? Just, um, yeah, and belongs not exactly. Mordor is going to find out, too, eventually, right? Yeah, they'd probably read the broadsides, right? Uh, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, you're right, Angrist. It might have been good for, like, the tourist trade in the Gladden Fields, but apart from that, um, uh, yeah, exactly. Really no good uh, can come of that. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, there's every reason to understand why Elendil doesn't talk about that. Now, Flamifer had an excellent follow-up question when Elrond says, and so it is named in the north Isildur's Bane. 
Where? Yeah, good. Flamber's just uh, refreshing that. Exactly. No, um, when you say north, Elrond, where, now, because north, when you're in the context of talking about Gondor and Boromir saying, if such a tale was told in the south, by saying in the north it was named Isildur's Bane, makes it sound like that's what everybody in Arnor called it. Right? They knew way more than you guys did, Boromir. Right? And it is possible, because, of course, uh, it is to the north that the you know, lone survivor of the Gladden Fields came with the true story, right? But, so is it, I, I think it is possible that Volondil knew his father's fate trifle. That does seem to me possible. But you know what? Uh, I would not be shocked if Elrond kept that. And I certainly, so Elrond finds out. Right, it, it 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 is you know Elrond learns of the truth of the matter. Um, does he publish it in Arnor? No. Again, why publish it in Arnor? Does he tell Velando about what happens to his dad? Now there, maybe so, maybe so. But I bet you that if he did tell Velando about this, he told Velando to keep it to himself, right? And so this was a story passed from father to son. Um, so, uh, so Lincoln, does Aragorn know? Yeah, I'm sure Aragorn knows. I'm sure Aragorn knows. Um, uh, exactly, Simon. It could be made into a cautionary tale. Don't repeat your father's mistakes. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but um, yeah, so that that you know, how long successfully was that lore passed down from father to son in the line of the kings of Arnor? I don't know. I don't have any necessary reason to believe that it was passed that it got to Aragorn by that means. Did Aragorn's great grandfather know about Isildur's bane and the full story? Maybe he did. Maybe Elrond has been maintaining that. Um, Exactly. Lincoln is asking who told Aragorn Elrond or his mom. I don't know which one it would have been. Um, would even Gilrine have known? Uh, I guess probably she would have known. Um, but uh, but in any case, Elrond knows, right? Uh, and he certainly, I think, would have told Aragorn. I have I have very few doubts about that. Um, especially since, as is betrayed in his words to Aragorn about the whole marry my daughter thing, right? He knows that Aragorn is the one. He knows that the time is coming and that, you know, the time is coming and now is when the, uh, you know, the, 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 the age is going to end one way or another. Right. Um, does Elrond know it went in the river? No, no, he wouldn't know that Eric. Um, he only knows that Isildur died and that he had it when he died. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the last anybody knows of it. Um, exactly, Trifle. Saruman has told them that it rolled down the river to the sea. Yeah. Um, yeah, Arden Cran says you'd think Elrond would at least try to have a friendly chat with Isildur about the ring. He did, Arden Cran. That quote... This I will have is Weregild for my father and my brother. I don't doubt that when he's quoting Isildur there, he's quoting what Isildur said to him. Right? Uh, why would Isildur say that? Well, that sentence is the correct response to, hey, or not correct, but I mean, 
the it is the second half of a conversation which begins Isildur, you know what great you've got the ring why don't we throw it into the you know cracks of doom right over there and destroy it right that would be the plan right Isildur? to which Isildur responds this i will have as wear a guild for my father and my brother right um uh yeah exactly so um uh so yes would uh, but notice how Elrond tactfully doesn't emphasize that. Uh, again, the Hugo Weaving Elrond in the Peter Jackson films, a great deal less tactful uh, than Elrond that we see here, right? Um, the version of the story that Elrond shows in flashback is very unflattering to Isildur, right? Um, Elrond here is being, you know, he doesn't glorify his own role here. He doesn't like, I told him and told him, but would he listen to me? Oh, no. Right? He doesn't do that at all. Right? He just encapsulates the whole thing in this one sentence, giving Isildur's justification, which, you know, has, like, makes it kind of sound legit. I mean, you know, it's okay. Right? Yeah. I mean, who could question Isildur's right to keep it if he wanted it? Right? Even if it's not Weregild, even his spoils. He has a right to the spoils. Right? Um, but, see, Arden Crayon, I don't think there's any reason to think that Elrond gave up rather quickly. What was he going to do? What's Elrond's options? We have what he says tells us he tried to talk Isildur out of it, but Isildur wouldn't listen to him. Right? Um, so, what's he going to do? Take it from him by force? Start a, a two-on-one. The, the three survivors of the last fight are going to now fight each other, two to one, um, so that they can take it off of Isildur's corpse. Is that going to end well? You know, I don't. I have a hard time imagining that even if Elrond or Círdan took the ring off of Isildur's bleeding corpse, are they going to destroy it? That's a pretty bad way to take possession of the ring. Um. And remember that at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I must take that ring from you in order to do the right thing for the greater good, right? And so therefore I must slay my friend and ally in order to bring about the great... Doesn't that sound like every bit as much of a rationalization and possibly a worse rationalization than this I will have as wear guild for my father and my brother? I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, so... Exactly, Bricktails. That sounds to me very, very likely um, to end with Elrond or Círdan, whoever was the last one standing at the end of that fight, uh, becoming a new Dark Lord. Absolutely. And honestly, look how parallel... We talked about the uncomfortable parallel between Isildur's claim and, the, and Smeagol's birthday present. What about the even more uncomfortable parallel between the corpse of Isildur and the corpse of Diogel, right? Um, I mean, is that the role we want to cast Elrond in? So again, what were, what were, what were the choices? They tried to talk him out of it. He doesn't go on about how long they tried. For all we know, Elrond stayed down there for months afterwards, trying to talk him out of it, right? But I think probably not because my suspicion is that both Elrond and Círdan are wise enough to know this, this is, a, is not a fight they're going to win, right? There is going to be no talking of Isildur out of this. So all they can do is 
Hope he comes to his senses. Maybe try to... T- Remember also, Isildur's coming back up north, right? So I think perhaps Elrond is not giving up on this, but thinking, I gotta play the long game here. Exactly. They're, they're both ring bearers. They're also neighbors. Kind of. I mean, not close neighbors, but still, right? I don't doubt Isildur was gonna stop at Rivendell on his way through, right, to go back to Arnor. Right, so there'll be time for further conversations about this subject. It's not too late, right? We could still make the trip back south and chuck it in the fire, right? Um, so, uh, so yeah, I don't think there's any reason to think that Elrond was giving up uh, too easily. Um, but And I certainly don't think that there's any other option, really. Um, oh, good, yeah, exactly. Volando is being held in Rivendell, right? So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, very likely that Isildur is coming through. So, um, uh, so yeah. Um, and could, yeah, uh, 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 Fred Rock Paper, you're absolutely right. Isildur is holding a really powerful and dangerous object, probably not best to make him fight the other leaders of the free world, especially when the thing that he's holding is the ring of power designed to dominate the ring that both Kier- the rings that Círdan and Elrond are both holding now, right? I mean, is that the fight you ought to pick? Right? Hey, you have the ruling ring, which can dominate the ring that I'm wearing. I'll fight you for it. Like, no, that's a very, very poor idea in lots and lots of ways. So, um, uh, for all these reasons, it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, it seems I, I can't see how Elrond could have done anything else. Um, uh, yeah, good. Now, Simon is an excellent point. He, uh, Elrond's brief comment um, uh, that um, soon he was betrayed by it to his death. Um, yet death maybe was better than what else might have befallen him. Um his claiming of the ring, Isildur's claiming of the ring led to his death. Could have been worse, though. Could have been worse. That was not the worst-case scenario for Isildur, right? Had he kept it, and had he survived and kept it, he might have become a ring lord, eventually. Um, that would have been much worse. We could have ended up with Sauron Part Two, like, within the same generation of the overthrow of Sauron. Right. So at the end of the day, the death of Isildur was not only not the worst outcome he could have encountered, but it was a a fairly fortuitous stroke at the end of the day. Um, there were better outcomes that could have happened. But see, many of you may remember from Unfinished Tales, when Tolkien went back and wrote the fuller version of The Disaster of the Gladden Fields, which Christopher published in Unfinished Tales. There seems to be some attempt to recuperate Isildur a little bit, right? Isildur says that he... Isildur says that he intends, that he, having had the ring now for some time, he thinks better of it, right? And that he's going to give it up when he gets up to the north. Okay. But it didn't do it yet, right? Um, remember Gandalf's comment? Uh, remember when Gandalf says to... When Gandalf says to Frodo, um, at 
most someone who holds a ring plays with the idea of giving it up. Um, but Bilbo's the only one who's ever gone beyond that and actually done it, right? Who, who's he talking about? I mean, who else? Would, did I mean, Smeagol, yes. Gollum pro- did have moments where he probably thought about giving it up. He's, it's probably an allusion to the riddle game, right? When Gollum promised that he would give to Bilbo a present if he won, that could constitute him playing with the idea of giving up the ring. You know, that that is a, sort of a subconscious, an expression of a subconscious desire to be free of the ring, that Gollum says that. Right in the you know again in the in the in the the first edition version, right. Um, but that same pattern you could say applies to could very well apply to Isildur as well. So people who say, you know, Bilbo isn't the isn't alone in history because Isildur totally meant to do it too. I I don't doubt that he had a genuine honest intention to do that. That doesn't mean it would have happened. That does not prove that it would actually have happened. Okay. Um, uh, And yeah, Frodo couldn't do it either. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Exactly, Simon. We do know that Gandalf got his ring from Círdan. So when he talks about nobody else ever giving up the ring, he's not talking about any ring of power, because he, of course, knows firsthand that someone else other than Bilbo has given up a ring of power. But the the elven rings don't have that same kind of hold on you, it seems fairly clear. Um, uh, I would think that Gandalf would... Ha- exactly. So did Celebrimbor. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So... Uh, yeah, exactly. Um... I don't think there's any reason to think that he's including the three rings in that statement. Okay. All right. <laughs> it is super late. Thank you for a really interesting discussion uh, uh, discuss, discussion here. So in-depth and uh, interesting that we, uh, we didn't even start class uh, for more than an hour tonight. Uh, we're going to end our discussion there and, and we'll uh, shift to our field trip. So thanks, everybody, for joining me. Uh, Twitter folks and Talon folks, don't forget you can join us there on uh, uh, on Twitch, twitch.tv slash SignumU, because uh, we're going to and we're going to switch over there now. So let's let's do that. That's it. Goodbye to the Twitter folks. Bye. Okay. There we go. All right. Got it. All right. Good evening. Good evening, Valori. How are you? I'm doing fine. Good. Doing fine. Okay. Ready to just, uh, look at some more looking rocks. That's right. That's right. All right. Um, so let us head out to Thorin's Gate again, because we're going right back to the beginning of Thorin's Gate. Okay. I keep forgetting when we come to Anor that uh, Narnian is not a lore master here. <laughs> I, I I made him a champion on this uh, server. Oh, that's right, yeah. Because uh, this is like the only server that Narnian is on that I was thinking maybe he would actually, <laughs> you know, fight in sometime, and I've never played a champion, so. 
Um, Cause that was when it was, when I created him was before they had the, what was it? The gift of the Valar? Is that yes. What yeah. I forget the different names of the different boosts, but, um, anyway, yeah, those before they had that. So I thought I might have to quest him up to, uh, uh, certain levels in order to be able to travel safely places. But yeah, I'm still working my way towards gift of the Valar on this server. I got every other server, but I'm still yeah. working on this one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, can you guys hear me? Okay, someone's saying what they can't can hear I do me. do for you? Oh, dear. hang on a second. Let me um, let me rewrite. I can things. hear you. Oh, okay, good. Okay. Oh, so All you right. are coming through? Okay. Okay, I guess so. Okay, good. Um, hang on. Let me. It maybe on Twitch they can't hear. No, they probably they should. Be. I'm on the person commented on Discord, so. Okay. All right. Good. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Good. Yeah, I did. I, I was messing around with the sound, so as to pipe in the sound from Tony's song earlier on. So my my uh, audio settings are unusually complicated tonight. So I would not have been shocked had there been some glitch like that. <laughs> but uh, I'm never for sure of anything. Never assume. Exactly. Yeah, that was a nice uh, that was a nice song Tony Mead did. That was a good. Yeah, isn't that um, really good? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, w- also um, the the lyrics are beautiful, but also Wexford Carroll's the one that's special to me too. So oh, yeah? I love the tune that he picked. Yeah. Yeah, it's the one my mom would always sing at Christmas. Oh, cool. That's very nice. Yeah, I don't really know it. Uh, I I I didn't really have uh, myself a history with that. Um. But I do love that idea. I do really love. Uh, I mean, it's 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 really cool when people you know write their own melodies um, mm-hmm. to Tolkien songs. But when when you can make something like that work, when you can take a traditional some kind of old melody um, mm-hmm. and use it uh, for one of, especially the Hobbit songs, right? With the Hobbit songs, it sounds especially. It seems especially apt because that's where we're told as Tony said with Bilbo's um, with Bilbo's poems we know that that's how it worked we know that's how it worked with the, the Man in the Moon song yeah he would take right? old tunes he would take old tunes and put new words to them so it works perfect exactly so yeah I thought that was really cool alright well here we are back in Freren's court um, uh-huh. and so I, we've been uh, we've pretty much covered what is west of here um, but before we get up there we, we need to go east and there's a lot that's east of here, including, oh, of course, yeah. those elvish ruins that we can see even just here on the cliffside, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, but let's start off on the ground floor, as it were, with the dwarvish uh-huh. buildings that we have. This looks like a pretty standard little uh, uh, dour, or not dour hand, uh, long beardish cottage, right? It's a boarded up. Is it are those boards? It looks like, like at least along the bottom, something's boarded. It's got like a slant board, or I don't know if it's a pattern. It almost looks like there's a, you know, like a, you know, it, like a divided stable door. Like you can, like the top and the bottom swing out separately. <laughs> I, 
I don't know why dwarves <laughs> like would a, build a door. Like a way. food truck, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what this is. Maybe this is like a dwarvish hot dog stand. Maybe that's, in fact, why there's this freestanding building right on the corner, right around the corner from Freren's Court. In fact, that's going to be... I, I, I think that's my explanation, yeah. Uh, so this Hargus, Hargus, what do you want? <laughs> right, exactly. And they sell uh, dwarvish yeah. delicacies... Uh, from inside this little shop. That's I love it. that works for me. That works yep. for me. It's it's Mythgard Cannon. <laughs> Mythgard Cannon, absolutely, absolutely. Um, okay, and this is another Freren, isn't it? Isn't that exactly yes, the same uh, statue? It's a replica of the statue. Yep. Okay. It's the same art style. Same. Yeah. It, it's striving to mimic the same artist as well. Though it oh, is on a smaller says, scale, isn't it? Yes. This is a, this is, this is a wee frerin compared to the other one. Mm-hmm. But it's the same pose. Yeah, same pose. Absolutely. I like how it's like we've got like a plinth on top of a plinth, right? You know, if, yes. if this big pedestal and on top of the pedestal is a little pedestal. Putting things on top. on top of other things. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, do you think these freestanding things are, are meant to be like braziers? Is that like for heat or light? It does look like a brazier. I do seem to recall them lit up, but um, maybe like at nighttime the braziers are lit. Yeah, I maybe don't quite remember. Night. What time of day is it? Is it going to be nighttime before we're done? Oh, it's dusk. Oh, good. So maybe we oh. will we'll probably get a chance to see here pretty soon. Yeah, we'll get to see. All right, let's go oh, through oh, yeah, this yeah. arch, which is a long beard arch. Sorry, I almost went there. through this arch before looking at it. Um, <laughs> and then over beard. here we have... Oh, yeah, you can see these braziers are the same style and they're lit. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, these ones are already fired up, as it were. Um, This looks... I don't see any Dowerhand influence here in any of this architecture. This all looks very Dowerhand from top to bottom. Yeah. Or sorry, very long beard from top to bottom. Yeah, it's long beard, which is really weird because this is where Scorgrim's too is. Yeah, which means, right? Yeah, that's Scorgrim's tomb right there. Yeah, which suggests that. Okay, if this is Scorgrim's tomb, Scorgrim died, and I'm forgetting my chronology again. Hundreds of years before Thorin returned, right? I think so, yes. Right. So, one of the questions that I had upon approaching Thorin's Gate was, is this just another example of a Dowerhand settlement which has been taken over by the Longbeards after they arrived? Hmm. Or is this just, you know, is this a sort of a a separate, new and independent Longbeard, uh, you know, city built from scratch by them when they arrived. Well, the fact that Scorgrim's tomb is here certainly suggests that it is not... Now, I suppose it is theoretically possible that when the Longbeards came back, they built, like, a new tomb for Scorgrim and Mm -hmm. moved his body here uh, for, like, political reasons, right? Like, we don't want the tomb of Scorgrim, which was elsewhere, to be like a, you know, some kind of like cultural rallying point for the dower hands or something like that. So we're going to, we're going to, we're going to like, uh, you know, 
keep that under wraps and we're going to build it in a new place. It's possible. I can imagine well, this that. This is hardly under wraps. Well, yeah, exactly. Not exactly secret, um, but uh, under control, like within our within our our main thing. But that seems to me really, frankly, less likely than that what happened to many other places we've seen happened here. As we've seen, there's lots of places in um, this whole region where we've seen evidence of dour handy architecture, but very little, um, very little, very few dour hand places exist that do not have long beardish stuff superimposed on top, right? They've been fairly okay. systematic um, about doing that. Okay. Oh, right. Oh, we, yeah, we got and some good Timur info. me of this, right? Okay, right. So some, I keep forgetting the we, legend of Scorgrim. Right. Yeah, so yeah, we got some good info. Uh, O'Malley and Tim yeah. posted out here. Right, right, right. Great, yeah. So, so his body was only found relatively recently. Uh-huh. So therefore, it this is by, a newly constructed tomb. It was found by Gormer the Steward, who was steward of Thorns Hall in Thorn's absence. After Thorn left to go on the this quest is, for Erebor, mm-hmm. yes. So this yes. is absolutely new Longbeardian. Okay, 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 good. Now, as I said, there's all kinds of reason to believe, or there's no reason not to think that this could have been Dower Handy first and then it kind of, you know, whitewashed over by the Longbeards afterwards. But most of the places where we've seen that, there's been some evidence of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay, so, uh, Fred Rock Paper, don't feel bad if you can't remember the Dower Hands. They were made up in the game. Uh, there's no reference to them. Indeed, within the published canon, that is to say the works published in Tolkien's lifetime and, and polished up in Tolkien, even if you count the Silmarillion, as sort of published slightly after Tolkien's death, but still what he was working on, kind of. Um, There's no reference to the names of any other families of dwarves. Um, We know that there's the dwarves of Nogrod and Belagast, but we're not even told what their clans are. We're told that after the fact. Um, It's published in the history of Middle-earth, but it's not in the Silmarillion itself. Anyway, um, uh, which means, yes, since there's no reference to any dwarf family who is not the Longbeards in The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, which is what the license that Standing Stone has access to, gives them access to, they could not... Uh, even those two that are mentioned in the history of Middle-earth are not available for the game. So they had to make some up. And in any case, we know there were at least seven clans of dwarves uh, from the seven fathers of the dwarves. Um, and... So even with what we get in the uh, history of Middle-earth, there are still at least like four dwarf clans that are unaccounted for. So um, uh, so anyway, they those they made up, but uh, it's uh, perfectly plausible that they would do. What is that? Okay, uh-huh. so we've just, we've come back out and here's our little mini Frerin and right next to our mini Frerin is this little That's uh, a walkway to patrol. You can't go across though. Oh, look, another half door. Oh. Hmm. There's another hot dog stand up here. Um, or it's a watch house. Yeah, it's Park who goes there. Right, right, possible. Do possible. you have any hot dogs? <laughs> right. <laughs> Dave's not here. 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um. Okay. Yeah. All right. Oh, oh, Molly also says after this gigantic tomb was built, uh, he started playing tribute. He Gormer. started to. That is um, the right. The steward. Yeah, Gormir stopped paying tribute to the Dwarven King. Oh, no, wait, King Gormir Aramor. is not a Longbeard steward. He's a Dowerhand steward, right? He's the Dowerhand steward, of, but in a Longbeard society when it was left. Right, right. So Thorin, according to the game lore now, Thorin left a Dowerhand in charge when he left? Oh, Bruiner's got it. I think from that up there is the gift shop. I think that, that's, that uh-huh. seems exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely right. But sorry, anyway, sorry, so we were saying about the dower hands being left in charge. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe it's that... a political move. Right, right. Yes. Okay. Or it's possible to be from two clans if you have a parent from one and then a parent from the other. Right, it is possible. I remember in my vague memories from playing the Dwarvish introduction, um, which was low these many years ago, um, <laughs> that uh, the actual betrayal, you know, when the Dower Hands turn against the Longbeards um, uh-huh. happens during the Dwarvish introduction sequence, right? Um, like there's the big reveal when they gang up on you and, uh, and uh, there's the shocking betrayal. Like uh, the sudden yeah, but, it, but, so. but inevitable betrayal by the Dower Hands? Uh, at this point, uh, Thorn and his posse have all left for Smaug. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's definitely the, the monkey getting the keys to the banana plantation. Right. Kind of thing. Uh, and, uh, oh, good. Yeah. So uh, Molly says it's further revealed in the Stout Axe intro. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, Which I totally need to play. Like, I haven't played that yet. So Thorne gave him the position because they were friends. Apparently Gormer proved his worth at some point. And so presumably Thorne was thinking, um, oh wait, no, I did play it. You're right. I totally did play it. Truid's Fire. I'm forgetting about that, (laughs) but I don't, oh, because then it leads back into this. Right, right, right. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, anyway, so the... Yeah, no, sorry, Druid's Fire. I was only thinking of the Mordor bit, like the, the Minas Morgul lead-in uh, part of that, which uh, didn't talk about this stuff too explicitly, as I recall. Um, yeah, okay. So, um, what was I going to say? So the implication, then, within the game story here, the implication of the appointment of Gormir the Dowerhand as steward of Thorin's Gate is that when Thorin left he was like sort of rolling the dice, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. it was like Erebor or Bust for Thorin essentially at that point. Um, He's not exactly burning his bridges behind him, but he's kind of burning his bridges behind him, right? Um, When he sets out for Erebor, he's meaning for the Longbeard's to move back to Erebor. So this little realm that he's established out here, he's done with it, right? And so he's going to hand it back over to the Dower Hands as a gesture, presumably, of what? Goodwill? Of, uh, um, 
I don't know if atonement might be too strong a word, but uh, that would be it's one way of reading things it. back the way they should be, I guess. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. That would be one way of reading it. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give this back to you. Um, but then of course, when they betray the Longbeards who are still here, then, and so that's why, um, you know, Dwalin is still in charge here when we take over because that transition did not end up happening the way that Thorin was hoping <laughs> no. it would happen. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, Okay. Notice here, like we saw in um, Sarnur, a, a lot of these little buildings, they have the appearance, this one especially for some reason strikes me as um, something which is not like a freestanding house in itself, but just... Uh-huh the outer parts of something which probably extends... This is probably like a, a little iceberg house, right? What we're seeing here is only the tip of the structure, and it extends yeah. like subterranean, you know, in the subterranean direction. Um, it's very much like Peter Pan's tree chimney kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So that the bit that sticks up is really just like the... It's more like the porch than it is like yeah. the actual house get the impression that that's oh, kind of what's going on. Oh, see, the razors are lit now. Yeah. Oh, right. They are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, what is things there a, for fuel? Is, ah, I thought I had just missed a road. Hang on. Let's go up here. Oh, yeah. You switched. Yeah, it's the switch back over here. Yeah. We should head up here. Because this looks like <laughs> a ruin. Just looking at all the snow. <laughs> Here we go. And you recognize this architecture? Okay. We are totally elvish here. And let's see. Thinking about the other elvish architecture we've seen in Arid Lewin, Mm -hmm. what period of elvish architecture does this look like it is? This is clearly not contemporary with Kellendim, like the primary city of Kellendim. Yeah, the primary, absolutely. I think this has got to be the old, like the uh, party house. The party house, yeah. Yeah. Das party house. This is clearly, this was an elvish party house, like the uh-huh. ruins that we saw up on the slopes above, and like that pillar that we see, you know, that tower that we see broken off down in the, down in the bay, mm-hmm. right? That's the ones, yep. Yeah, yeah, although these the archways out here and the gazebo are different. We haven't seen that yet. Yeah. Yeah, the pillar does not look that familiar. Especially this wire work up here. Up on the top? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's meant to look that bent in or whether that was time and gravity or something else that bent it in. Right. I mean, if you look at this gazebo... And the pillar next to it, right? Mm-hmm. Not only is the style rather... But the pillar looks much older. Yes. Doesn't seem to quite match the party architecture. No. 
or maybe it's the gazebo that doesn't quite match it. Yeah. yeah. What I could believe is that so the house over here, right? This was a party house. Mm-hmm. So um yeah. This was a party house. <laughs> Excuse me. Then after <laughs> the abandonment, abandonment of the party era, right? <laughs> when did we decide that was? Did we decide that was at the Battle of the Last Alliance or, or was that earlier? I'm trying to remember the conclusion we came to about that. I know it, we said Second Age. Second uh, Age? So we're thinking it was yeah. probably around the time of the, 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 war, the first War of the Ring? Uh, before, the, just before the the War of the Ring, because then they had to abandon the stuff and let it languish. Right. Okay. Okay. So yeah, if this is like was abandoned in the early Second Age, that still gives plenty of opportunity for later elves to come, because this this gazebo, frankly, looks more sedate. I mean, look at this. There's this big, huge, like, almost the entire real estate of this gazebo is made up of this fountain, which is quite lovely, by the way. Like yes, the, uh, it is. The mosaic inside the, the oh, fountain yeah. is like, very that. striking. Looks like um, ferns. Yeah, it does. We haven't seen much mosaic, like tiled no, mosaic no, like this. This is the first. This is... Yeah. Someone special lived here. So I think this is this is new. And so I wonder if this was made, the gazebo and these arches leading up to it, was made as some kind of commemoration by later elves. Again, and by later, we have like 5,000 years worth of time in which, uh, you know, opportunity for there to be a later elvish culture. And all of it could still, even the even the later of the two sets of elvish architecture could still long predate you know, all of the dwarvish, you know, structures down the hill there. Yeah, they c- could both be from, you know, the same standing city. It's just one was built much later than the other. Right, it's possible. It's possible. We'll have to look inside and see if there's the same meshing of different styles. Yeah. Uh, but so I don't think we saw this part outside the city. We didn't see this part outside the city during right. the during its payday because right. we... The, Came into the gates over here. Right. Okay. So now here we have a side road. Notice that the cobblestones don't extend. Right? Mm-hmm. The cobblestones end, and then we come down to this dwarvish construction over here, which is obviously newer, and it's this is just a path that connects it to the old elf highway here. It's newer, connects, but it's in bad state. Yeah. Which connects the lower party house to the city of party people. Yes, the party city. My goodness. (laughs) Party city. The refuge of Athelion. Okay. It always gets creepy when you go through here. That's uh, a bad stone. It is, totally it's dismantled. barely holding together, this stone. You can see how cracked it is. Okay. Yeah, there's the... It's a big arch 
bridge up okay, there. Notice the pillars up there on the hill are, are just the same as the pillars by the party house down the hill. And... Uh, oh, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, now, now look at these red tile roofs. Look at this. Isn't that just like Duolon? Uh-huh. Yes. Notice the, like, rocket ship tops. It's exactly uh-huh. the same as Duolon. And Cologne. Yeah. Oh, but, oh, yeah, the rocket ship shape. Yeah, that's from Duolon. Yeah, that is really interesting. And this arch. Okay, but we've got the old pillars, not the newer ones that we saw down the hill. And the swans. And the swans. Yeah. I'm looking for... I'm actually not seeing any party people stuff other than the gates. The gates for... And the pillars. And the pillars. Yeah, the gates and the pillars. So, are these houses... Are they newer? Are they same? So, the, the rock itself looks similar. The rock stuff we determined happened later when people resettled areas. Right. So, no, no, no. Does I, that I mean, mean the stone. The stone itself looks similar. Oh. To the. It's hard to. It's pretty janky stuff. Yeah, it is. A wooden door. Oh. Because. Yeah, the similarity between this and Duoland is very striking. Uh huh. Which suggests, because so that- as I recall, we were thinking that Duoland itself looked like it was newer than, like, the party people. Oh, hang on, that's leaving the city. We should. Oh, wow, can we get through here? I know we can get through here before that's new. Oh, yeah? Well, hang on a second, I want to yeah. go, go up the hill over here. Yeah, okay. Got all these gates. By the way, we can... Yeah, the gates definitely gates? look like the Second Age stuff. The gates yeah. and the walls look like Second Age, but the housing doesn't. It does suggest parts of this area were built later. But well, that's exactly what I'm wondering about. That's exactly what I'm wondering about, is... Can we see any clear evidence of, you know, two stages of construction here? Because one could easily conclude that there were originally things built here by the party generation, but then later on... Um, the reconstruction. <laughs> yeah, there was a reconstruction. Like, that this was... this. I mean, this is called the refuge of Athelion, right? So... And the party people, for, for the party people, it probably wasn't a refuge, except, like, metaphorically, presumably. Um, but, um, is this I the bridge where Storgrim was killed? Uh, yeah, you can't gloss that. That's that's yeah. the one that, the, yeah. when Scorgrim brought the roof down, they, right. they, exactly. your elven master separated the bridge. But look at the gold filigree um, railings on the other side. That's something you don't normally see, ra- railings in an hmm. elven construction. Yeah, that, and it's very much and, like the the that's that's very much like the party elf. Look, there are elements of mixing the styles. Yeah, yeah. Oh, hey, you can make it across. Yeah. What? You couldn't 
I remember not being able to do that in the uh, intro, but apparently set, now we set can. new. I'm not risking it. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um. All right. Yeah, but I agree. This does suggest that there is a mixture. Again, doesn't prim- the primary thing up here, which says the later period, are those roofs? So, one could say that the, those domes were put on later, but it's seeming more less and less likely. I suspect that this was a city built by the party elves. Uh-huh. I mean, that seems the simplest explanation. We could imagine a two-stage development of this area, but I don't know why we would have to, you know? Mm-hmm. It kind of implies that e- that the whole thing was constructed, except for the palace, palace that we saw in ruins up on the hill. That definitely seemed to be a little older, but it seemed that the rest of the city was built around the same time, and it married the two styles together. Right. Like, this is the missing link here. <laughs> right. Okay, so where are we going? We're changing to... These are dwarvish cobblestones now, all of a sudden. Uh-huh. And we just we just crossed over there from... Right, there's the elvish cobblestones here. Uh-huh. And there's the entrance into the... Inside the mountain over there. Yeah, we can definitely see some of the elven structure from inside as well. Uh. Wait, there's an entrance into the mountain over here? I think so. Wasn't there? Oh, no, wait. Looks like it did end. No, it must have been another hill. Oh, yeah. Well, these hills... The entrance to the mountain was up on the hill behind the big thorn. Up on the... Okay, okay, that's the one. All right. All right. Well, still, we have... The dwarves have taken over because this is not like before, where we saw the elvish highway going by, and there's just a path leading off to where the dwarves had constructed. This is the dwarves yeah. taking over, right? Yes. They have laid their own cobblestones. They didn't extend it all the way to the gates, right? They kind of, you know, left the elves stuff standing out of like respect or whatever. Well, that's where Scorgrim's body was discovered. He was discovered in the ruins of the Elven Temple that was accessed through caves that dwarves discovered. Right. Like it had busted it had busted through the walls and into the Elven into the Elven uh, uh, building. And that's how they got to it. And so they pretty much these... claimed this area as their own. Right. Now we have these two Okay, sorry. So Deathman says here's the game lore. Um, the elves of Linden founded a refuge upon the slopes of Arid Luin, where wood for the white ships was gathered and elven wine was made. Athelion it was called, and it was a place of contemplation and peace until, like, the Scorgrim issue breaks out. Huh. But I thought Scorgrim was quite far recent. away from any harbor. Yeah, I mean, your ship and your. Uh, your wood quite a distance. What is this place? I mean, we got an underwater river at Hall. Maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe. I don't know. I've never seen this place before here. Yes. I have no memory of this place either. So, okay, we've got this one that goes into this 
strange building built into the side, and then you've got this other huge gate. Kind of altar-looking thing. Ooh, it's locked off. Locked gate. We cannot get out. We're totally off the map. Yeah. We're like completely. Like I said, I don't even remember any of this being. Huh. Why this side just stayed locked? Looks like the dwarf said nobody goes up to those creepy elven buildings, you know? Well, except, no, this is on the other side of the creepy elvish buildings. I mean, if you look at the map, we're... Yeah, but um, this side goes into the dwarven... Uh, right, because they the took over gate. the road again. So it, if we imagine here... the Because, again, Thorin's Hall, what is shown on the map as Thorin's Hall is not, of course, Thorin's Hall, but the outer porch of Thorin's Hall, which is all underground inside the mountains. And so this presumably is looping around, right... And coming back yeah. to the west towards Thorin's Gate. So presumably this road where we able to continue would lead to some like side door or back door into Thorin's Gate itself. But yeah, like I said, it's yeah, it's keeping it's keeping us from getting back to Thorin's Hall, but I think it's to keep dwarfs from going up here. Right, maybe right. Yeah, yeah, you like its actual function. Um, unless they are sort of thinking or fearing that this, you know, could there be some like quasi superstitious fears about the Elvish ruins? So that's not. I wonder. I mean, it's tempting to think like, well, but like, you know, the dwarves of Thorin's Gate wouldn't have any strange bizarre, superstitious beliefs about elves, but mightn't they? I mean, they didn't interact with them a lot. I mean, think of Thorin and company and the Hobbit. It's not like they're exactly elf friends. Um, in fact, they're especially by the end, elf unfriends, if anything. Uh, okay. One thing that is perfectly clear is that if there is influence, it is Duoland that looks like this and not this that looks like Duoland. Uh, great. Oh, look, this even looks like the bridge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It goes from Duoland to Kalendum. Yes. Yes, it does. Oh, look at the filigree work on that arch below us. Oh, the way. Oh, right there, yeah. Oh, on the top yeah. of it, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so new theory. New theory. <laughs> this city was the home base of the party elves in the Second Age. Okay. And from here, they used to roam about having their yard parties, you know, their lawn parties, um, and excursions in other places around the Blue Mountains. Uh-huh. After the time of random elvish partying was done, um, they still lived here. And when elf, when they established their new cities in Dueland 
and in Kelendim. They constructed them after the pattern of Athelion here. And then Athelion itself fell into ruin, but Dueland and Kelendim were, re- were continually rebuilt and, 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 um, uh, and maintained so that the same motif of these red tiled domed roofs that we're seeing here um, with the rocket ship thing on top is uh, is is something that was uh, that was maintained uh, in du- or constructed in Duolan as a, a sort of homage to Evelyn here. But when was this ruined? I don't remember my dates well enough, and I keep getting confused about Scorgrim. Um, I don't remember. Because this place looks know. like it's been it's been abandoned for thousands of years. I think it was at least a thousand years, if not more. Right, it's, when Scorgrim yeah, attacked, well, when it was that? says when Scorgrim attacked, but what year was that? It was yeah. a little vague it's, on that it's, one, It's the Scorgrim lore that I'm forgetting. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you also mentioned, look at the, the root of the party places. It follows shipping routes. Because they were right. talking about all these things they were collecting to send it away to the shipyards. They, right. and, and then they follow the route because they all were on the path to get to rivers. Okay, Especially sure. the big river. The, remember, Kalandam was the big river port. Yeah, yeah. So and it this, makes sense. This they river stop, that they we carry can see this the stuff ri- all the way, and those those yeah. places would be that would receive. Them. Yes, the river that comes out of Thorin's Gate loops around and eventually connects with the River Loon just above. Kalondim and below Duoland. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, also, if they took a path over land, it coincides with parts of uh, yes, uh, the exactly. other parts. Duoland Looking at the map, and... we saw there were there were there were party buildings up here on the slopes of the mountains, um, up uphill from the river between Kalondim possibly and Duoland. Possibly Gondaman. We possibly Gondaman. We don't possibly even know Gondaman. what kind of architecture right. we don't, that was. We don't know that was that got cleared out by the Longbeards. But yes, Gondaman would have been sort of the halfway point for the overland route. Um, mm-hmm. We do, of course, have a certain precedent of uh, elves transporting things by rivers that begin as underground rivers and then uh-huh. <laughs> come out. Um, that is a known elvish tactic there. Okay. Alright, so, yeah, O'Malley and Deathman are saying that we're talking about centuries, not millennia, for the death of Scorgrim. Uh, 700 years before Elrond's dream. I don't like it. <laughs> doesn't match our dates. doesn't match my dates. doesn't match my dates in particular like if if I if we'd started up here and moved down towards Kalendim I could have made that work just with these ruins up here uh-huh. uh, I'm not saying like oh no way these ruins could never be as young as 700 years like sure okay sure 700 years they could look like this that's not my beef my beef is it doesn't fit with the architecture we see down in Kalendim um, yeah yeah the much more like the fact that there are those broken down ruined towers off in the outskirts which have so little architectural connection to the main buildings um, if it's only been 700 years 
then the elves who are currently living in Kalondin would not have, like, built an entire new city from scratch near the ruins of their old... Like, they would have maintained their old buildings. I mean, come on. Uh Of the elves who live in Kalondin, what percentage of them were still living there 700 years ago? Like A lot, right? I mean... Yeah. uh, So... So a 700-year gap does not, for me, really explain the architectural evidence that we see in Kalondim. Um As I say, it could be made to work here. Uh, yeah. I but, mean, it, it doesn't say that's when they constructed it. They could have constructed it several thousand years before. And keep in mind, the, the, gold, the, the place that was the worst shape was the, the party people palace up on the entrance before we came in. Yeah. Yeah. This is a nice little sort of cloistered area in the city. I like this. I like this spot. Notice it's not snowy here. Oh, I hadn't even noticed that, but you're right. There's no snow anywhere in here. Mm-hmm. That's very Get interesting. Get higher up. Yeah. And when you go right outside the gates, you know, you get Elven magic. (laughs) Underground hot springs. Very interesting. A little volcanic activity? Who knows? Right. (laughs) Maybe just elven magic. Interesting. But yeah, those gates. That's pure party people gates. Party people gates. Okay. If I was forced to make it work with that 700-year gap, that this city only fell 700 years ago, here's what I would say. I would say that this, this city up there was not built by the party elves. Because they way predated this. That this was the original Elvish structure in this area. Built by the Uh party people. Who did not build cities in this area. They only built party palaces which were designed for temporary residents. Like only a century or so and then they'd move on to their next party palace. Right? Yeah, like a fancy camping spot. Exactly. Exactly. So this is the Elvish party spot. This was the original construction here. Then after the party Uh period was over, the elves came and they constructed, perhaps even at the same time as Duolon was constructed, they constructed uh, uh, Ithelios, right? And they they deliberately paid homage to this architecture here when they built it. That would also explain why we have this gazebo and fountain, which is in a different built in a different era, right? Yes. Yeah, that meshes. Okay. So they built this as sort of a, a little, like, acknowledgement of the ancient party place, right? But, the, you know, mm-hmm. the time of the party place is no more. By the time they came and they built, and I'm already forgetting how to pronounce it, Athelion. Uh, uh, By the time they built Athelion, they were needing a secret refuge. So they built it further up and around the corner and, and uh, you know, through that little pass back hidden amongst the hills here. Um, and, and into they, the caves. 
and into the caves, right? Exactly. And so they 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 used some elements of the construction here, but this was in more pragmatic times, right? They were they were uh, they were logging, they were mining, uh, they were um, not just wandering about and partying like in their good old carefree days. Yeah, I mean, you can see how how just how um, long this has been left abandoned. So much the floor is completely covered by rock and snow. Oh, exactly, like the, the yeah, foundations the whole, have shifted. Exactly, the whole, uh, the whole, yeah, like yeah, over here is the of course the excellent example of that. You can see that archway was certainly not constructed like that in relationship to the ground. Yeah, it's definitely been here longer than the city. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, this was definitely here. Whereas the city, we still have the paved floors of it, right? So this was here not only before the city, but significantly before the city. So this... Oh, someone's saying there's artwork on the debris. Which? the uh, Other than the filigree? Uh, where are you seeing the... Uh, the Loxamon. I think they're standing oh, on it. The artwork. Where, where, where is... There we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a picture on this. Oh, almost looks like a cushion. Oh, oh, whoa. You're standing yeah, on it. There, I'm standing on it now. Okay. Wow. That's not part of it, is it? I don't know. It looks like a cushion just sitting on it. Like, is this a sit upon? Like, what we had in Girl Scouts, we'd take some right. plastic and newspapers and make a cushion to sit on. It does kind of look like a throw pillow, doesn't it? Yeah. Isn't there a. Isn't there a a tapestry, like a, a wall hanging, an in-game wall hanging that looks like that? Yes, it does. It looks a lot like uh, um, 18th century cruel tapestry. Or like a kneeler, a church kneeler or something. Right, it does look like a church kneeler. Yeah, uh-oh, somebody's horse is in the way here. Oh, that's mine, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Bad horse. There we go. Uh, that's interesting. I, I seem to recognize that as a hanging. Maybe it's yeah, just Yeah, I wonder if it was left like here by all the, the people who buy? are here. Yeah, early in the quest, this place is loaded with people. I wonder if it was just kind of left behind. By, yeah. Uh, like, yeah, I can't think that that's original. And it doesn't look like it, certainly doesn't look like it's an organic part of the. It's interesting. It just doesn't fit. Yeah. No, it's it's actually when you look at it from the side, it really does actually look like a throw pillow. It's not just that the Good design time, is reminiscent though. of one; it's proportioned like it too. It's, it's sticking up in that same way. Yeah. No, I think that's. It, I think that is. It's lumpy too. Somebody brought a cushion, uh, and <laughs> uh, so there you go. There's a cushion. Perhaps like unto Frodo's cushions at his feast. <laughs> a hobbit lay here. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Okay. I think that's yeah, that's that's clearly what that is. <laughs> I had someone is throwing a that. red herring at us. Exactly. Exactly. Um I see what you mean, Bricktails. It's a little bit like the top, like the capital of the pillar, but the shade is different. No, and see, look at the texture of the side here, right? It's got 
stitches on it. It does look like it has stitches, whereas, yeah, see, it's a different texture. It is similar, but it's definitely a different texture. That's a little weird, the cushion. I know. Somebody left a, th- a random throw pillow in this ruin. Yeah, somebody Man. will have to do the... Someone will have to do the um, dwarf starter again when we get thrown back to this area. See if see there's if any there, actual yeah. NPC using the cushion for something. Exactly. Very interesting. Anyway, okay. Yeah, okay. So that's what I'm thinking. This is the old part. The uh, the the inner part of Ethelion was newer and was abandoned, if they say so, 700 years ago. But it would have been built only... a you know, it was probably a third age construction. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep, I agree. Yeah. And it could be, so it could actually be contemporaneous with Dualond. Um, yes. But just, you know, it fell to ruin 700 years ago and was abandoned, whereas Dualond was It made. does seem like they took more care with us to get more of that gold filigree and definite art style of the party palace to, to, to take with them. Yeah. Hey, wait a second. Winter height? What is that? On top of this hill. Oh, this is where the entrance is. There's that entrance. That okay, so this is... Yeah. And this goes into, like, the tunnels, right? With the... Mm-hmm. the by the tomb of Skorgrim? Yeah. It's almost one o'clock, though. I think we should Yeah, yeah, tomorrow. we should go. No, I wasn't going to go next, in. I just wanted, I was just looking at what yeah. it was. Yep, yeah, okay. Excellent. Um, all right. Very good. Okay, now we are going to stop here with uh, with the discovery of the uh, lost throw pillow. I think we've, like, you know, <laughs> if that's not a perfect capstone to an evening's exploration, I don't know what is. Uh, but anyway, thank you, everybody. Professor Olsen and the lost throw pillow. <laughs> oh, man. This is uh, actually now that makes it sound like a Nancy Drew mystery or something like that. Um, but anyway, <laughs> thank you everybody for joining us tonight, uh, and I uh, look forward to seeing you guys next Thursday uh, for another discussion and adventure. Thanks everybody. Good night. Good night. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of the Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.